When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, Unshaken Saints. I'm Jared Halverson, ready for another week of scripture study with you. Today we'll be covering section 41 through 44 of the Doctrine and Covenants. It includes section 42, which is the law that we saw hinted at uh, back in section 37. In fact, it's amazing to me to see the date of section 37 uh, and then to see the date of section 41 where we'll start today. Uh, section 37 is the one where the saints were told, you need to pick up and move, okay? Uh, and that's the end of December of 1830. By the time section 41 is received, it's only February 4th, 1831. I don't know about you, especially you parents, I wonder how, how long does it take for you to give uh, a piece of instruction, we'll, we'll, we'll soften the word commandment for a moment, uh, to our children, and then how long does it take for them to actually comply? Or in our case, when the Lord asks us to do something, when do we finally get around to doing it? Especially if it's something monumental or difficult, or requires a lot of self-sacrifice. That's the case for these saints in, in New York and Pennsylvania. Pick up, leave everything that you've known, and move to the Ohio. And yet Joseph Smith, leading by example, within a month and a half, he's gone from New York, and he's here. He is in Kirtland, ready to receive revelations and move forward. It really is amazing how quickly the saints responded to the Lord's command. And if you remember from last week, particularly section 39 and 40, we got to meet James Covell, uh, who had promised, covenanted in fact, to, to do anything the Lord asked him. And that uh, commitment lasted a day. Uh, they received the revelation, do what, I'm, what you're asked, and the, the following day, he was nowhere to be found. Uh, in section 41, there seemed to be a few hints that uh, James Covell was still on the Lord's mind. So keep an eye out for that. Starting verse 1, hearken and hear. Remember how many revelations of the Doctrine and Covenants begin with that call to attention from a God who speaks. Hearken and hear, O ye my people, saith the Lord and your God, ye whom I delight to bless with the greatest of all blessings, ye that hear me, and ye that hear me not, will I curse, that have professed my name with the heaviest of all cursings. Now, like I said, that might be a subtle hint aimed in the direction of James Covell and any who are like him when it speaks of blessings to those that hear God and curses for those who do not, but specifically those who don't hear him that have professed his name. Ignoring God is one thing, that's bad enough, but ignoring him when we've promised to do otherwise, that adds a level of hypocrisy, this, this idea of broken covenants. And if we remember President Packer's words, that we're more often punished by our sins than for them, then imagine this curse, the heaviest of all cursings, being not something that God has to impose, but something that's inherent in the broken covenant. If being cut off from God is spiritual death, imagine cutting yourself off from God after he has betrothed you to him. That's what covenant's all about, right? To establish this covenant marriage relationship between us and the Lord. And for him to have offered us his name and for us to say that we've accepted it and then to spurn that offer, that proposal, to break the engagement, 
or to be unfaithful to the marriage, if we want to take it to that point. Not being able to be in the covenant relationship with Christ that he offered and that we accepted, that is the heaviest of all cursings. And it's one that we brought upon ourselves, punished by our sin rather than for them. But I also want to focus, rather than on the negative, the positive, the way this verse begins, you whom I delight to bless with the greatest of all blessings, think about what has probably been on the mind of these saints. It's probably sacrifice. It's what I'm giving up. The home, the life, the farm, everything that I've known back in Pennsylvania and New York, picking up and leaving it all behind. And I think so often when we are making those kinds of difficult sacrifices, we're looking backwards to the things that we are giving up. And here the Lord is beckoning them to look forward to the blessings that he has promised them, the greatest of all blessings. If you'll just hear me, and you've been hearing me, you've covenanted and are keeping those covenants. You're moving to the Ohio. Verse 2, he then says, Hearken, O ye elders of my church, whom I have called. Behold, I give unto you a commandment that ye shall assemble yourselves together to agree upon my word. Back in section 37, they were first told to assemble at the Ohio. And here it's to assemble to agree upon God's word. I think there's something powerful about that. This President uh, Ballard has talked about this often, about counseling with our councils, of coming together, this, the principle of scattered revelation, that God doesn't give the leader uh, or the presiding officer all the revelation himself or herself, because the problem with that is there's not enough or there's not as much buy-in from the other members of the council. It en ends up becoming, well, I know what needs to be done, and so I'm just going to delegate responsibility. And people may or may not be fully engaged in that. Whereas if it's scattered revelation, and the, the leaders of that organization, the Ward Council, the Relief Society Presidency, whatever, if they come together to agree upon God's word, each member of the council contributing their puzzle piece, every, both halves of the couple, husband and wife, for example, or a family council, every member of it, seeking God's understanding, trying to come up with the best solution, and offering their best possible advice. Coming together, assembling, to agree upon God's word. I think part of that entails agreeing on what God's word is. What, what is he saying to us as a group, as a family, as a, as a presidency? Second, I think it's part of agreeing what that word means. Kind of the meaning and intention that we've seen before. Like if this is God's instruction to us, well, that is, what does that mean then? What is his intention? And I would say a third is how do we implement it then? And counseling together in our councils to understand and agree this is God's word for us. And this is what we'll do moving forward. Verse 3, he then says, by the prayer of your faith. It's amazing how often those two words go together. Infuse your prayers with faith and vocalize your faith with prayer. As you do that, ye shall receive my law, that you may know how to govern my church and have all things right before me. If you remember back in section 38 last week, which by the way is such an important section. If you didn't have time to watch the entire video for last week, I would highly recommend you go back and watch section 38. Uh, when the Lord tells them, you're going, to, you're going to come to the Ohio for two main purposes. One is to receive my law, and that's what we see hinted at here in verse 3. And the second is to be endowed with power from on high. Both of those things will happen in, in Ohio. The law, as we'll see today in section 42, includes primarily the law of consecration. And endowed with power from on high is the Kirtland Temple that they will build and then dedicate in 1836. 
Again, we saw those side by side in the same verse back in section 38. But I do love the, the combination of those two, that the law of consecration is primarily temporal, horizontal, uh, loving your neighbor and caring for them, whereas the other, endowed with power from on high, is primarily vertical. It's the first great commandment, loving God. And it's amazing that as the saints are gathering together to fully live out those two great commandments, to establish their cross and take it up daily, the vertical beam and the horizontal cross beam. And yet the irony is, according to section 41, verse 3, I mean, they've, they've done so much already, sacrifice, move, they're coming and assembling at the Ohio. But even now that they're here, the Lord is saying, well, you still need to pray in faith to receive my law. Talk about putting faith and works together. All this work to come here, wonderful. You've shown me that you're willing to assemble, to gather. Are you still willing to pray in faith to receive the law that I've promised you? If you do, you'll receive it and know how to govern my church, how to have all things right before me. I'll talk about this in just a moment when we start section 42. But the saints were struggling in Ohio, knowing exactly how they're supposed to run things. I mean, if you remember the story, the Lamanite missionaries, Oliver Cowdery, uh, Peter Whitmer Jr., Parley P. Pratt, Ziba Peterson, as they leave to head down to Missouri to teach Lamanites, they pass through Kirtland, Ohio on the way. And Parley P. Pratt meets with his old friend Sidney Rigdon, gives him a Book of Mormon, uh, and then they, I mean, they baptize a lot of, of uh, new converts, and then they head off on their mission. Well, meanwhile, Sidney Rigdon and Edward Partridge, who we'll meet today, go north to go find out for themselves more about this, this church that they're hearing about. They go to meet with Joseph Smith. But what does that mean? You have all these brand new converts there in Kirtland where their normal leaders, Sidney Rigdon primarily, is gone. And their, their newfound leaders, these missionaries that just brought them the restored gospel, have left to go continue on their mission. Can you imagine being a brand new convert to the church, surrounded with other brand new converts, and not having any leadership? Like, what are we supposed to do? We've got the Book of Mormon. Uh, we believe there are prophets upon the earth again. We believe that the restoration of all things is taking place, particularly spiritual gifts. But with that, that individualized gift of the Holy Ghost and belief in spiritual gifts, it opens the door to incredibly powerful manifestations of true spirit, but also opens the door to deception and manifestations of false spirits. We'll see that a lot in the next few sections, the next couple of weeks at least. And that's totally normal. Imagine, again, a bunch of new converts trying to figure out how to run the church without any ordained leadership. Uh, maybe that's one of the reasons, Joseph, you need to get to Kirtland ASAP. Okay, things are getting crazy down there. Uh, and so as we see there in 41 verse 3, you need to know how to govern my church and how to do all things right before me. In fact, preview of coming attractions, how does section 42 end? Notice the very last phrase, thus shall ye conduct in all things. I mean, that's what section 42 is. It's the law. This is how you're supposed to run things. And so as you pray in faith to seek guidance and direction, you'll understand how to have all things right before God. That's important for him too. It is a house of democratic participation and revelation for all, but it's also a house of order. And he's trying to prove those contraries as well. Individuality and community, democracy and hierarchy. Now back to 41 verse 4. I will be your ruler when I come, and behold, I come quickly. You shall see that my law is kept. So all of this in context of the second coming, which we saw so much of in the, all those missionary sections in the 30s, 
That's when he will make sure all things really are set right before him. He'll be running the show. In the meantime, there's all kinds of delegation, which can lead to some challenges on, on our end. But to understand God's law, and as he says at the end of that verse, to see that it's kept. It's interesting that this is still early America. The U.S. Constitution was ratified only like two generations ago. And to see this division of labors, uh, the branches of government, where you have the legislative branch, which is responsible to establish the law. In spiritual things, that's what's happening today in section 42. The Lord is going to give them his law. He is the legislative branch, okay? Yes, there is common consent and we sustain things, but we're not coming up with the Lord's law. This is Moses on Sinai, okay? This, this is the Lord's finger on the tablets of stone. And we'll see some of that repeat, uh, repeated in section 42. So God himself is the legislative branch. Here is the law. The judiciary in the United States Constitution is the, is the branch responsible for interpreting the law. And spiritually speaking, that's where the Holy Ghost comes in, where the Spirit can convey to us, especially as we gather in council, what are we, how do we implement the law here in our ward or within our, our family? What does God's law mean for me in my particular set of circumstances? As we just learned in General Conference from Elder Bednar, that great statement from Joseph Smith, I teach them correct principles. I teach them the Lord's law, okay? But then I let them govern themselves, trusting that each person has the gift of the Holy Ghost to help interpret the law for their set of circumstances. The principle is flexible enough that it can be applied to whatever your situation might be. But that does require the judicial branch, which is the Holy Ghost then this verse to me suggests the executive branch, which I think typically we would assume, oh, well, that must be God too, because he is the, the chief executive. But if the executive branch's role is to enforce the law, remember, legislative declares it, judicial interprets it, executive enforces it. Well, did you see how verse four ended? Ye, all you gathering of elders, leaders of the church, ye shall see that my law is kept. Now that's interesting. Like I said, I would have assumed that God would be the executive branch, that he is enforcing the law. He is the executive branch in so many ways as far as presiding over all things, okay? He is our Lord and our God, as we saw back in, in verse 1. But in verse 4, if he's delegating to us the responsibility of seeing that his law is kept, talk about an, a learning opportunity for us. How do I do that? Especially, how do I do it in the Lord's way? Since God honors agency and expects us to do likewise. No wonder we'll learn later in section 121 that priesthood authority is meant for persuasion and long-suffering and love unfeigned, not for some kind of uh, harsh enforcement of things that you have to keep these commandments. When the Lord asks us to see that his law is kept, that's going to be a matter of, well, do I keep it myself first so that I can lead others without hypocrisy? And then can I teach them and persuade them in such a way that when I do leave them to, to live correct principles, they'll actually do so. That, for every church leader and for every parent, I think that's an interesting thing to ponder. How do I see that God's law is kept within my stewardship? How can I persuade people to honor God's law and obey it? Now in section 41 verse 5, still on this theme of the law, since he's about to give it in section 42, he that receiveth my law and doeth it, the same is my disciple. The Lord basically said the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. 
And he that saith he receiveth it, and doeth it not, the same is not my disciple, and shall be cast out from among you. Again, does that sound reminiscent of James Covell, who said he received God's law, said he would fulfill it, and then didn't? Even the sense of being cast out from among you, like I said earlier, if it's something that we do to ourselves more than something that has to be imposed from without, if we're punished by our sins, the punishment is inherent in the sin itself. James Covell's departure, he cast himself out from among the saints and cut himself off from the kinds of things, like we'll see in section 42, Law of Consecration, that would have saved him from himself. So receive it and act upon it. Verse 6, For it is not meet that the things which belong to the children of the kingdom should be given to them that are not worthy, or to dogs, or the pearls to be cast before swine. I mean, the fact that the Lord would give us his word or his law at all suggests what he thinks we are. And then it's our turn. How we respond to it suggests what we think of ourselves. That God would give us the law, you are children of the kingdom. I, I see you as that. If we reject it, are we, are we countering the Lord's impression of us with our impression of ourselves? Do I see myself as unworthy, as a dog, as a swine, not ready for the pearls of great price that the Lord is offering us? In verse 7, again, it is meet that my servant Joseph Smith Jr. should have a house built in which to live and translate. So as the prophet gives full-time attention to the work of the Lord, can, he help, can the saints help provide for him? And then verse 8, Sidney Rigdon as well, but a little different. I, I love the way the Lord puts this. Again, it is meet that my servant Sidney Rigdon should live as seemeth him good, inasmuch as he keepeth my commandments. Now that is a beautiful uh, proving of contraries right there between individuality and community. Or perhaps we could say between uh, unity and diversity. Talk, working, spending my time with, with young single adults, it's interesting to see how much of a priority for this rising generation is their own individuality, their diversity. I just, I don't want to be a cookie cutter. I would do it like everybody else. And sometimes there's this concern that if I submit my will to the, to the Heavenly Father, will I just end up losing my own personal identity? And what I love about section uh, 41 verse 8 is there's this balance that the Lord allows you to live as seemeth you good. At the same time, please keep my commandments. That there are certain parameters that we try to live our lives within, the commandments of God, namely. But even within that, there's a lot of flexibility of, well, what does your life look like? Again, there's the Holy Ghost, your, your personal uh, interpreter of the law. To me, one of the best places to understand, at least something that struck me once, is as the tribes of Israel were crossing the Jordan River to come into the Promised Land. Remember, they had to kind of go around the other side and come in from the east side of Jordan. And the, the land that was promised to their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is all west of the Jordan River. But two and a half of the tribes, uh, Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, as they've come around the east side of Jordan and are ready to come over, they realize that, wow, this territory, I mean, we've had the, judge, uh, the spies have gone in and checked out the Promised Land. They bring back their reports. It sounds amazing. But our, our tribes are more herdsmen, and it seems like the land on the east side of Jordan would be much better for, for our kind of lifestyle. And, and so they go to Joshua, and they're like, um, I know this is a little unorthodox, or it's outside of the box of way of thinking. I know that we're supposed to be on the west side of Jordan. That is our promised land. But 
this area east of Jordan would fit our lifestyle, the way we're trying to do things so much better than anything we've heard of on the West. Would it be possible for us, I mean, is there any kind of outside-the-box thinking allowed? And I love the response of, of Joshua. Ultimately, the answer is yes. You can stay east of Jordan. But here's one other caveat there. For us to conquer the promised land, it's going to take all hands on deck. So will you, rather than just stay here and then leave the other, what is it, nine and a half tribes to do it on our own, would you come with us across the Jordan River to be all in on this and all one and truly conquer the promised land together? Once, that we, once we've done that, then if it's better for you to live on the east side of Jordan River, kind of an extension of the promised land eastward, then be my guest. But I love the way that the order there, if once you've conquered the promised land, once, once you have fully internalized the commandments of God, if you're truly worthy of the guidance of the Holy Ghost, and he says, you know what? Your life might not look exactly like the norm in the church. You are not breaking commandments. You're not living outside the law. You have conquered the promised land, okay? And with that unity established, then there is so much room for diversity within that broad umbrella of unity. The concern I often feel is when people don't want to cross the Jordan River at all. I have no interest in the, the collective unity of the, of the saints. I don't, I, have, I don't have any interest in the promised land. I just want to live here and do my own thing, okay? Just let, leave me to it. And, and the balance the Lord is trying to help Sidney Rigdon strike. You can live as seemeth you good. Just make sure that you keep my commandments. There is beautiful space allowed for personality. And it's fun for me to be able to meet different students and have different ward members and, and different leadership styles of, as bishoprics come, and, come in and come out and go out. It's a beautiful thing to see that diversity within the unity that comes in keeping the commandments of God. I hope we can try to strike that balance in ourselves. And I hope that we allow for that kind of balance in other people as we see that God's law is kept. Then verse 9 through 11, we get to meet, once again, Edward Partridge. We saw him called on a mission a few sections ago. Well, now he's going to be called on a, basically, a lifelong mission as the first bishop of the church. He's told in verse 9, Again, I have called my servant Edward Partridge, and I give him a commandment that he should be appointed by the voice of the church and ordained a bishop unto the church to leave his merchandise and to spend all his time in the labors of the church. Now, there's a lot there. To be appointed by the voice of the church? Now, how does this work? Because the Lord just gave a commandment that he's supposed to be called. Well, there's a difference between common consent and a true democracy where the people's voice really is the voice of God. Vox populi, vox dei. Instead, this is, no, God still is running his church. He is Lord and God. He's calling this individual. But it is up to us to sustain him. So there's this balance then between God's governance and the people's participation in this and support for the decisions that God makes. Appointed by the voice of the church. Interesting phrase. And to be ordained a bishop, not just of the church, but a bishop unto the church. 
Elder Cook in priesthood session uh, last week gave a beautiful talk to the bishops of the church. And I could feel, I could sense on, on their behalf just kind of getting l lower and lower in their chairs as the weight of responsibility was resting upon their shoulders. Uh, I hope that this verse uh, means something to all of you wonderful bishops. That it's, it's one thing to be a bishop in the church or of the church. But to really wrap your mind and heart around that, that preposition, a bishop unto the church, I'm called to bless you. My good bishop popped in our, our house and visited yesterday and just was talking about my son as he's preparing for his mission and pre, uh, Melchizedek priesthood ordination. And I just thought, here's this wonderful soul, so busy with so many other things, and he's still making house calls. Uh, really impressive that he, he feels, and all the bishops that I've served with and served under and been led by, there is this sense that they are servants unto the church and their, their calling is to them. And they do leave their merchandise. They do spend, maybe not all their time, but an incredible amount of it in the labors of the church. In verse 10, that bishop's role continues, to see to all things as it shall be appointed unto him in my laws in the day that I shall give them. And that day is less than a week away. As section 42, the law is given. Then verse 11, this beautiful glimpse into the heart of Edward Partridge, why he was called to this calling to begin with, and this because his heart is pure before me, for he is like unto Nathaniel of old, in whom there is no guile. I mentioned this last week when we were talking about James Cobble, and as it described his as, your heart is right before me. Well, right now it is, Well, at this, at this time. And then the next day, well, his heart was right before me. And the idea of, is our heart such a, Oh, a, a moving target for the Lord that we're, uh, no, uh, there it is. And, and when will I finally have your heart within my sights that I can hopefully lay a hold of it and change it? Well, compare James Covell in 39 and 40 to Edward Partridge in 41. And here's a man whose heart is pure before God. It's not a moving target anymore. It has settled into position right there set in place to the point that he's compared to Nathaniel of old. Now, the Nathaniel reference is a beautiful one because it is the one where the Lord says to him, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And that describes Edward Partridge as well. But notice, uh, this is John chapter 1, when Nathaniel is called, it comes right on the heels of him finding out that, wait, there's this Messiah? He's come? The time has arrived? And they're like, yeah, he's, he's, he's from Nazareth. And that's when probably no filter, uh, Nathaniel says, well, what good thing can possibly come out of Nazareth? And it's then that he meets Jesus, and Jesus says, ah, behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile. I've always thought that there's maybe two ways to take that, because I wonder if Nathaniel is like, oh, man, did he, did he hear me say that about his hometown? Oh, insert foot into mouth. I feel like an idiot. Well, but to, to speak... To, to say what's on your mind, there's a certain level of guilelessness in that. I wonder if on the one hand, the Lord is simply saying, oh, well, no filter is right. You're an Israelite in whom there is no guile. What you see is what you get, and you spoke your mind, and that's awesome. So I wonder if by the Lord saying that, he's reassuring Nathaniel, it's okay. Uh, I want honest opinions among my followers. I want your best counsel, okay, as we counsel together and come to understand the Lord's will. Or, on the other hand, is it a gentle rebuke, but a sense of, Nathaniel, don't worry about what you just said. 
I know who you really are. I know that you're an Israelite in who, whose heart is pure. No guile at all. And I wonder if Nathaniel comes away from that conversation feeling, I'm not all that Jesus expects me to become yet. But I want to get there. I want to live in to the, the praise that Jesus just gave me prematurely. Now, when it comes to Edward Partridge here, he, his heart is pure. No guile. The perfect person, in my opinion. Actually, it's not even my opinion. The Lord called him. It's his commandment. So the perfect person in God's view to fulfill this role as first bishop of the church. And in many ways, we could refer to this as first presiding bishop of the church. I mean, technically, technically now, though, there's only one ward, and so only need for one bishop. Soon there'll be another in Will K. Whitney. But the type of person that Edward Partridge was, you couldn't ask for somebody better prepared to fulfill this responsibility. A huge part of it was because of the nature of his heart, a willingness to sacrifice, but also just his natural gifts and talents that he developed over a lifetime. He was a successful hatter that lives in Painesville, Ohio, not far from Kirtland. Very well respected and successful. Kind of a, a, a Martin Harris type, yet his heart was even in a better place than Martin's was. Remember, Martin was the one that was told, quit coveting your own property. It's like, wait, but it's my property. I said, how am I coveting? Oh yeah, it's your property. Well, for Edward Partridge, it was, I'm not going to covet anything that belongs to me. I am happy to uh, help share, share with the other saints, to help them learn to share with one another. In fact, he was so well respected in his community that when, uh, among with all this other, these other Campbellites that joined the church, he hadn't been baptized yet with the Lamanite missionaries, but he does leave the flock to go back with Sidney Rigdon to go meet Joseph Smith. And the rest of the people back in Ohio were curious to get his take on things because they knew that Edward Partridge was a man who would not lie. Here's somebody that we can, we can trust our lives with. He's going to go get report, a first-hand account, and when he comes back, we know he's not going to lie about things. Again, if he's going to be the one to whom they consecrate their properties, it's going to have to be someone that they can fully trust in. Trust his judgment, trust his fairness, trust his honesty. And that's exactly who they're getting in Edward Partridge. In fact, it's really interesting on this, this fact-finding mission to go back to Palmyra. He, Joseph Smith isn't home when he go, first goes there. But he, Edward Partridge checks out the farm. He's just trying to get a sense of well, what kind of people uh, live here and run this place. He was so impressed by the, what he called the good order and industry of the Smith farm. He's like, hmm, these people who know how to, how to run a farm. I mean, he's, he knows how to run a business. Sound like a bishop that's going to be able to help with run the temporal affairs of the church? I mean, that, that's what his eye is upon. I mean, again, talk about a perfect person to be able to do this. Uh, the other thing that he does that I thought was interesting is he goes around and meets the neighbors and tries to get a word from them. Like, well, what do you, what do you hear about these, these Smiths? What's your impression of them? Trying to, to discern the character of the people that he's thinking about joining. And that gift of discernment is going to be key as a bishop as well. What's interesting is by that time, the church has already been organized. There's been all kinds of opposition in the area. And so you can imagine what kinds of uh, firsthand accounts that he's going to receive from the neighborhood. Well, the interesting thing is, he, when he, after all those conversations, he came away thinking, the Smith family sounds like an impressive bunch because the only complaint that the neighborhood has about them has nothing to do with their character. It only has to do with their religious leanings these days. The neighborhood can't accept their religion, but they have nothing else to complain about. I thought that was interesting too, that this future soon-to-be bishop 
would be able to, again, discern the, the truth and to kind of winnow out the truth that comes from other people's perspectives. Well, by the time he actually got to meet Joseph Smith later on in that visit and first heard him preach, he was so moved by the Spirit that he asked for immediate baptism and received it. As soon as he joined the church, he went back to Massachusetts to talk with his, his original, his father's family, who all rejected the gospel, as well as him. His own sister said to him, Edward, I never want to see you again. And then another brother accompanied him back to Ohio because he thought, something's wrong with Edward. Uh, he's lost, he's deranged, was the word that they used. And so I better accompany him to make sure he gets back home safe. Hopefully there he can get, come back to his senses. Well, he, he never lost his senses. He gained a testimony on that journey and came back ready to fully commit to the work of God. And full commitment was what was asked of him. His life as a bishop was intense. To care for the temporal needs of the saints, to receive the consecration of properties and to give them, discern again who needs what and who can be best blessed by these things. A bishop in those days, their responsibilities were so much broader than, than running sacrament meeting on Sunday and counseling people on their spiritual things. So much of what a bishop does today was just a portion of Edward Partridge's responsibilities. The whole temporal affairs of the church rested upon him, and it was a heavy burden. His daughter Emily remembered this, When I look and remember the great responsibility resting upon my father as bishop, his poverty and privations and hardships he had to endure. And remember, this is a guy that was very successful in his own business and gave it all up to be able to care for the poor around him and becoming poor himself as a result. Emily went on. So the poverty and privations and hardships, the accusations of false brethren, the grumblings of the poor and the persecution of our enemies, I do not wonder at his early death. And when I remember his conversations with my mother, and can now comprehend in my mature years his extreme weariness of soul. It brings to my mind a clause of his blessing, which says, Thou shalt stand in thy office until thou shalt desire to resign it, that thou mayest rest for a little season. So interesting to ponder that kind of heavy weight and responsibility. When you get to a point where you can no longer handle it, and it's time for a rest, and let us know. So we can let, let you resign from this position. And what's amazing, death took him before any kind of resignation. It's like, that's how I'm going to rest. Only in the kingdom of my father. I mean, Edward, again, his heart was solid gold. When he was in independence, his family's still back in, in, uh, in Ohio, and he's even warning them, honey, I don't know if you want to come. I'm here with church responsibilities. And if you want to gather up the family and join us, more power to you. But you got two options. You can stay there and, and have a more comfortable existence because out here on the Missouri frontier, we will suffer hardship like we haven't experienced in years. Well, bless Sister Partridge's heart. She gathers the family and comes. But it was even there in Independence where Edward is tarred and feathered by a Missouri mob. In fact, he wasn't sure if it was going to stop with tarring and feathering. He had no idea, is, is this the end for me? Will they end up killing me? But then this Israelite in whom there was no guile faced the mob with such resignation. In fact, I'll let him describe the experience. He said, I bore my abuse with so much resignation and meekness that it appeared to astound the multitude. 
who permitted me to retire in silence, many looking very solemn, their sympathies having been touched as I thought. And as to myself, I was so filled with the spirit and love of God that I had no hatred towards my persecutors or anyone else. I mean, incredible what the Spirit of the Lord can do with a pure heart. And that was Edward Partridge for you. In fact, like, like was said by his daughter and, and the self-sacrifice and all that the family went through. This is one other thing that Edward Partridge said, another glimpse into his heart of gold. I have torn my affections from this world's goods, from the vanities and toys of time and sense, and been willing to love and serve God with all my heart and be led by his Holy Spirit. That's so amazing to me. To tear your affections away from the things of this world, to pry yourself away from worldliness. Again, juxtapose him and James Cobble. Ah, the cares of the world. I just can't stand to give them up. Edward Partridge walked away from it all. And then he said that as a result of that, as a result of foregoing the vanities and toys of mortal time, he said, my mind has been, as it were, continually expanding, receiving the things of God, until glories indescribable present themselves before me. You see what kept Bishop Partridge going? The eternal perspective. I see the worldly wealth as, as the toy thing that it is. And I see the mysteries of the kingdom, the glories of eternity opening before my view. Can you imagine having a bishop like that that is asking you to consecrate your all to the kingdom? Consecrating those things to a bishop who is now returning a stewardship to you, asking you to do your very best with it, to, to build the kingdom and to care for the poor and needy around you. I don't think Bishop Partridge ever asked any of the saints to do something he wasn't willing to do himself. He's such a, a perfect personification of the law of consecration. Who better to implement it among the saints? This revelation then ends in verse 12. These words, this revelation, are given unto you, and they are pure before me. Wherefore, beware how you hold them, for they are to be answered upon your souls in the day of judgment. Even so, amen. I love that phrase of beware how you hold them. I always think of being a new father and having a baby. And the, when you're holding your child and everyone always freaks out about the, the neck, the neck, hold the head. And it, as if the, the head was going to drop off or if you, if you held the baby wrong. It, I've learned over the years that babies are a little more resilient than that. I, I do care how I hold them. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. But I just remember this, this fear and, and how am I holding this child? Am I being sufficiently careful with them? Well, think about that in terms of the words that God has given you. Here's revelation. I'm speaking again. Hearken and hear, O ye my people. And beware how you hold the words that I've been given you. Remember when the Lord said, I'll give you the scriptures as they are found in my own bosom. Think of how, how carefully and gingerly and protectively the Lord holds his own words. Do we do the same? Interesting that that would be the last phrase lingering in our minds as we turn to section 42, as the law is given. How, did, how the carefulness with which Moses held those tablets, would the house of Israel before him hold them with similar care? Well, we'll see what the Lord gives them in section 42, and then time will tell 
how the Lord or how the saints embrace this law. Now here I do want to step back just for a moment and give you two statements, one from John Whitmer, church historian, and one from Joseph Smith himself about the time period. I mentioned this earlier when it's, you know, they got no supervision and they're all brand new converts that are so thrilled about spiritual gifts that they're starting to kind of do some interesting things. The other part of this, and part of the preparation for the law of consecration, is that there were some people there in Kirtland that were living a form of it themselves even before they learned about Joseph Smith, even before the Lamanite missionaries came through. They called themselves the family, and they tried to live that way. Again, these, if these are Campbellites, then they are restorationists, and they're studying the New Testament intensely, trying to find out, well, what, have we, what are we not yet living? And to read things in the book of Acts, for example, about the saints holding all things in common one with another. They're like, let's go for it, which is amazing preparation for the law of consecration. But the beauty of consecration, as, as defined by revelation, is there's a little more order to it than just some kind of a communal free-for-all. There is an order along with this, this communalism. Just like we saw in section 41, there is an order on how to live, even with all of this diversity and individualism that's, that's allowed within it. Again, the Lord is trying to strike a balance and prove contraries, as always. So listen to what uh, John Whitmer had said about the situation. About these days, Joseph the prophet and Sidney Rigdon arrived at Kirtland to the joy and satisfaction of the saints. Their old leader, Sidney, is here. Their new leader, Joseph, is here. They finally get to meet a prophet that they have come to believe in even before they meet him. By the way, that's important. Some detractors or even just regular historians have said, oh, it must have been Joseph's charisma that drew people to him. And the irony is most people joined the church long before they ever met Joseph Smith. Did Joseph have charisma? You bet. But that wasn't what drew people to the kingdom. It was a testimony of the gospel, typically by reading the Book of Mormon first. That was the, the case with the saints in Kirtland. But there's all this joy and satisfaction. They finally get to meet a person that they already believe in his prophetic gifts. John goes on. The disciples had all things common. So they're trying to live this communal life, but this is how John describes it. I love it. And we're going to destruction very fast as to temporal things. <laughs> I love that. It's like, whoa, they're, they're losing it all, okay? They're going to temporal destruction. Somebody's got to organize this thing a little bit better. Well, in step Joseph and in step Edward Partridge. For they considered from reading the scriptures that what belonged to a brother belonged to any of the brethren. Therefore, they would take each other's clothes and other property and use it without leave which brought on confusion and disappointments, for they did not understand the scripture. After Joseph lived here a few days, the word of the Lord came. And that's where you see section 41, and now section 42, and then we're off and run. But that's where you get a sense of this unstructured communalism, where it's like, hey, if all things are common and I just see something lying around, I can just take it. There was absolutely no sense of private ownership in that kind of a situation. And that's swinging the pendulum away from individual ownership off into the opposite extreme where some confusion and disappointments can take place. The law of consecration is going to try to bring it into this balance where, yes, there is sharing, but there's also private ownership. We'll talk about that more when we get into, into the details in section 42. It's amazing the balance that the law of consecration is trying to strike. Now, in Joseph Smith's take, he put it this way. The branch of the church in this part of the Lord's vineyard, which had increased to nearly 100 members, were striving to do the will of God, 
So far as they knew it, John Whitmer gave us that hint. They're, they're trying to follow the scriptures as best they can, but it, they're not fully understanding it. So when Joseph says they're striving to do the will of God so far as they know it, that's a good attempt. However, he continues, though some strange notions and false spirits had crept in among them. Again, if God is opening the doors of revelation to everyone, but it's a foreign language that still takes a while to become fluent in, yeah, there's going to be some, some, some strange notions. And with everyone believing in spiritual gifts and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, that can open the door to some false spirits as well as some true ones. So how's Joseph going to handle this? We saw the, the careful and the care and the caution that he exercised with the Hiram Page Searstone experience. How am I going to navigate this? Individual revelation, institutional revelation. Well, he's going to need to do the same kind of thing here. So he said, with a little caution and some wisdom, I soon assisted the brethren and sisters to overcome them. I love Joseph's approach. Little caution, some wisdom. I think any leader who's responsible to, to fix some problems or some spiritual excesses of things, it's going to require not just a little caution, but a lot and a whole lot of wisdom as well. Thankfully, Joseph had both of those gifts. He said, the plan of common stock, which had existed in what was called the family, whose members generally had embraced the everlasting gospel, was readily abandoned for the more perfect law of the Lord. And the false spirits were easily discerned and rejected by the light of revelation. It's beautiful, the, the progress here. You've been following light according to what you've had. Well, here's a flood of it. And by the light of revelation, now you can discern where things were a little off beforehand. And now having the perfect law of the Lord, you can see what was missing in the partial approach to things. I mean, that's what brought Sidney Rigdon and all these Campbellites into the church to begin with. What we have is wonderful, but I'm seeing more and a better understanding of what we're trying to do in restoring New Testament Christianity ourselves. So with all that background, here comes section 42. Very long revelation. Actually came in parts uh, that were then combined together into one solid revelation. But he begins again with this call to our attention. Hearken, O ye elders of my church, who have assembled yourselves together in my name, even Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world, inasmuch as ye believe on my name and keep my commandments. Beautiful introduction. This is coming from the Lord your Savior. At least, that is, if you'll believe on my name and keep my commandments. To set up this, to introduce the law, the lawgiver is introducing himself and asking them, I am here to save you if you'll believe in me, if you'll keep my commandments, if you'll follow the, your half of the covenant relationship. Otherwise, I cannot save you if you won't accept my law or keep my commandments. Verse 2, again I say unto you, hearken and hear, and obey the law which I shall give unto you. Are you prepared to approach it in that way? For verily I say, as ye have assembled yourselves together, according to the commandment wherewith I commanded you, and are agreed as touching this one thing, and have asked the Father in my name, even so ye shall receive. That was the promise that he made back in section 41, right? If you'll assemble yourselves and agree upon my word, and then pray in faith to receive my law, it will be given to you. And that's exactly what's happening here. It's amazing what happens with unity. If you'll just come together, assemble yourselves, and agree as touching this one thing, 
What are we agreed on? Are we, have we established a, a unity of perspective in terms of what our goal is? Or what our problem is? Or what we need to understand from the Lord? Are we on the same page? So that then the Lord can write on that page. Then in verse 4, he begins to give his law. And this first section of it goes from about verse 4 to verse 17. And it has to do with sharing the gospel. So much of what we've seen in the Doctrine and Covenants up to this point is about missionary work. Field is white, go thrust in your sickle. And so the, this commandment to grow, to share, to spread the word is the first part of this revelation. He says in verse 4, Verily I say unto you, I give unto you this first commandment, the missionary one, that ye shall go forth in my name, every one of you, excepting my servants Joseph Smith Jr. and Sidney Rigdon. They've got some work to do right here, especially the Joseph Smith translation. But then in verse 5, I give unto them a commandment that they shall go forth for a little season. So even they've got some missionary work to do. And it shall be given by the power of the Spirit when they shall return. How's that for an open-ended mission call? For us, it's, you will be called to serve for a period of 18 or 24 months. There, it's like, well, just go out, little season. Uh, the Spirit will let you know when it's time to come home and get other things done. That's great counsel for anyone that has too much on their plate. Uh, how much time do I give to this activity before shifting to something else? Well, allow the Holy Ghost to let you know, enough on this one, return to this other thing. Then in verse 6, you shall go forth in the power of my Spirit, preaching my gospel, two by two, in my name, lifting up your voices as with the sound of a trump, declaring my word like unto angels of God. That idea of the trump-like sound, loud and clear, came up often in those missionary sections we studied two weeks ago. But here we see also the importance of the Spirit as one of your companions, and then to have at least one other companion go along with you besides the Spirit, preaching my gospel two by two. Now we saw a lot of those missionary sections were just uh, Joseph Smith Sr., go out and share the gospel. Samuel Smith, go share the gospel. Sometimes we see a twosome, like Ezra Thayer and Northrop Sweet. Sometimes it's just a group of missionaries, like the Lamanite mission, as they all head off together. Here we see, really for the first time, a clear, this is the norm that's being established. Go two by two. And I honestly wonder if part of that resulted from the kind of revelatory chaos that erupted in Kirtland without any kind of leadership. And in this sense of coming together and being agreed on one thing and seeking the Lord's counsel on things. Talk about a blessing having two by two, knowing you'll have a companion that you can bounce your thoughts and ideas and impressions off of. Such an important part of missionary work and of just service to the Lord in general. Then in verse 7, continuing to teach the missionaries, "...ye shall go forth baptizing with water, saying, Repent ye, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." The first discussion that missionaries teach today is a little longer than that one, but that was the original. It consisted of change, of repentance, of coming unto the Lord. It consisted of covenants, of being baptized to commit yourself fully, immerse yourself in God's work. And it consisted of a sense of timing. This is all preparing for the coming of Jesus Christ. His kingdom is at hand. Verse 8, from this place ye shall go forth into the regions westward, and inasmuch as ye shall find them that will receive you, ye shall build up my church in every region. So we are gathering all together here in the Ohio, but you can plant churches and build them up everywhere that you go. It's not an automatic get baptized and then come join the rest of the, body, the, the critical mass, the body of the saints. 
so many of these early missions that people would go on, including one that Edward Partridge went on that I think he walked like 2,000 miles on this one mission, but he visited like 25 different branches of the church, probably twigs, more like yeah, rather than branches, just a family here or a, a couple of neighbors there, and just these people that haven't yet been called to gather to, with the, to the, the body of the saints, but to go live the gospel where they, wherever they happen to live. So in verse 8, that you get that suggestion. And then verse 9, it seems to point to the future of really gathering all together in one place. Until the time shall come, when it shall be revealed unto you from on high, when the city of the new Jerusalem shall be prepared, that ye may be gathered in one that ye may be my people, and I will be your God. There's a temple sense in that phrase too. To claim God and God to claim us, to make temple covenants. For that, you will need to be gathered in one place. And ultimately, I mean, yes, it will be in Kirtland also, first temple of the church, but ultimately it will be at the site of the new Jerusalem, which was part of the responsibility of those Lamanite missionaries to go and, and seek out the revelation of the Lord of where that city would be built. Now, verse 10, we get to meet our, our other hero, Edward Partridge, again. Again, I say unto you that my servant Edward Partridge shall stand in the office whereunto I have appointed him. And it shall come to pass that if he transgress, another shall be appointed in his stead. Even so, amen. So while everyone else is heading off, uh, going out on missions, Edward, you stay put. Stand in your office. Because, believe me, you don't, have a time for, you don't have time for a mission right now. You'll go on some. But right now, your responsibility is right here in Kirtland to do as you have been appointed to accomplish. And like he did with Joseph Smith earlier, when, he was, when Sidney Rigna was told, you know, keep an eye out for Joseph, help him, uh, help him keep the faith. And, and these verses about, and if Joseph ends up leaving, then I'll just replace him. That even Joseph Smith is replaceable. Well, Edward, as, heart of, as much of a heart of gold as you have, you're replaceable too. So don't transgress. Same is true of all of us. Verse 11 then, Again I say unto you that it shall not be given to anyone to go forth to preach my gospel or to build up my church, except he be ordained by someone who has authority. And it is known to the church that he has authority and has been regularly ordained by the heads of the church. You get a hint towards the fifth article of faith on that one, that a man must be called of God by prophecy and revelation before he heads out and shares the gospel. Like, like I said, we're, starting to, we're trying to avoid some of the chaos that is beginning to erupt when you have leaders in different areas and the saints are beginning to spread out. It's one thing when everyone can, can fit under the same roof at the, the Whitmer uh, home in Fayette. But that really is never going to be possible again. So... How do we make sure that there is order in the kingdom? How do we keep individuals from arising and claiming prophetic leadership when it hasn't been granted them? There's actually a woman at this time period named Mrs. Hubble who was doing that, going around among the saints saying, oh, I believe in the Book of Mormon just like you do. And I'm a prophetess. And so here are some of the revelations that I'm receiving. And again, there's some kind of, that, there's the female equivalent of Hiram Page there. And so you're starting to see Joseph concerned about this and the Lord saying, well, how do we order the kingdom so that there's not a steering wheel in every single seat? The, the driver does need to have common consent and discuss things with every passenger. But there is a place for institutional revelation, which does help guide subsequent individual revelation. In this case, I love that he's establishing that, that authority to go preach the gospel and build up the church is not some esoteric kind of, I feel called of God to lead us in a certain direction. 
We see apostate groups doing that even today in the 21st century, where someone will say, oh, oh, President Nelson isn't sufficiently inspired. Uh, the, the church has lost its way, and so I'm going to lead us out of the, uh, this, this newfound wilderness towards some, some gl more glorious promised land. I've said this before. Most people who leave the church leave because they don't believe enough. But there are some, select few, who leave because they believe too much. Uh, and again, in some, uh, typically in some unauthorized, so-called, uh, self-proclaimed prophet. And section 42, verse 11, is such a beautiful, I mean, compare that to what the Lord is establishing here. No, it'll be clear. You'll know. They'll be ordained by someone who has authority. It will be known to the church that they have authority. Folks, priesthood has already been restored. Uh, John the Baptist and Peter, James, and John, it, it has come to Joseph and to Oliver and from there to other leaders of the church. And, and it's going to be known. There's not going to be some new apostle that comes out of left field. It will be known to the church. They will be regularly ordained by the heads of the church. No need to get pulled away or led astray by those unauthorized. Verse 12, he then goes on, Again, the elders, priests, and teachers of this church shall teach the principles of my gospel, which are in the Bible and the Book of Mormon, in the which is the fullness of the gospel. So if verse 11 is who is teaching, verse 12 is now what they're teaching. Principles, Elder Bednar would love that after his last talk, right? Teach principles of the gospel and then let them govern themselves. Find those principles in scripture, in both the Bible and the Book of Mormon. For non-members of the church, the, the emphasis, I would say, is allow the Book of Mormon to help uh, let you know what to teach as well. But for us lifelong members, for example, it might be an important reminder they're in the Bible too, okay? Uh, I just said to go out two by two. Well, even my scriptures have companionships like that. And the Bible and Book of Mormon going out two by two, bearing witness of one another and together establishing the principles of my gospel. Use them both. Learn from them both. Teach from them both. Then in verse 13, if we got the who in 11, the what in 12, well, we see the how in 13 and 14. They shall observe the covenants and church articles to do them. I mean, if you're going to go out and teach the gospel, you better live it yourself. And these shall be their teachings, as they shall be directed by the Spirit. So even there we see a balance between the, the structured iron rod kind of this is what it is. It's the church covenants. It's the church articles. It's like what we saw in section 20. Th these are the truths of the gospel. But also, as shall be directed by the Spirit. So there's the flexibility side. We need the orthodoxy, but we also need the, the, the flexibility to be able to meet the needs of an individual person that you're teaching the gospel to. So all of us missionaries, full-time or member missionary alike, I hope we're striking the proper balance here. That we're not so far on the side of uniformity that it's, oh, nope, it's the covenants, it's the church articles, that's it. And we don't tailor anything to the individual needs of the investigator. On the other hand, we don't want to overcorrect and swing the pendulum so far of like, no, no, hey, just it's a, it's a free-for-all and I can teach anything that I want to. Well, careful. Balance covenants and church articles with the directions of the Holy Ghost, and you won't go astray. And then even more so, verse 14, how are we teaching? We're teaching by the Spirit of God. The Spirit shall be given unto you by the prayer of faith. There's that phrase again. And if you receive not the Spirit, ye shall not teach. And I honestly wonder if the shall not is a commandment 
like thou shalt not teach. If you know you don't have the Spirit, don't even make the attempt. Or, if it, rather than a commandment, it's simply a statement of cause and effect. Like, you won't be able to teach. I mean, yeah, you'll be able to open your mouth and you'll blah, blah, blah and share some things. But it won't have any real effect upon the person. Because it's not reaching spirit to spirit. Remember that great verse back in section 11 when Hiram Smith is told, you need to obtain the word before you declare it. But once you've fully obtained it, then if you desire, you shall have my spirit and my word. The, con the power of God unto the convincing of men. But remember that if. Why would, I, why would any teacher of the gospel not want the spirit? Well, typically because they wanted something lesser a little bit more. And, and that gets in the way of the Spirit. That was James Cobble, for example, right? Wanted something else more. But if we want, truly want the Spirit and are living our lives in such a way that we show God how desperately we want it, if we are praying for that gift, if we are exercising faith that it will come, then we will be able to teach with power and authority from God, with the Spirit and the Word. Oh, I pray that, that we're praying. I have faith that we have faith. Are we opening our mouths and letting the Spirit fill it? That's real teaching. And it's amazing that in the context of the law of sharing the gospel, that's one of the most important parts of it. Verse 15, he then says, All this ye shall observe to do, as I have commanded concerning your teaching, until the fullness of my scriptures is given. So there's more. Stay open to that. The Joseph Smith translation is, is being worked on. The Doctrine and Covenants continues to grow. Later we'll see the revelations that now comprise the Pearl of Great Price. Keep going, okay? Don't wait for all of that. Go preach what you have now, but be open to continuing revelation. Then in verse 16, As ye shall lift up your voices by the Comforter, ye shall speak and prophesy, as seemeth me good. The Lord is the one directing all of this. For behold, the Comforter knoweth all things, and beareth record of the Father and of the Son. I love those, that, that missionary portion of the law. To any of us called to share the gospel, and that's all of us, to any of us called to teach or to bear witness, that is the counsel that we should all be following. The Lord then shifts gears and goes from missionaries to all of us members. How are you living the gospel? If you're seeking the Spirit, well, there's some things that would really disqualify you from it. So let's step back from sharing the gospel and get back to perfecting the saints. And let's talk about the law that sounds a little bit more like the law of, that comes from Sinai. This is about as close to a repetition of the Ten Commandments as we'll get here in the Doctrine and Covenants. In verse 18, he begins, Now behold, I speak unto the church, Thou shalt not kill. Wow, okay, we're going straight to that one. Okay, whew, um, that wasn't really one that I that was struggling with. Uh, but I, I guess we're going to establish the, the most important or, or the most serious from the very beginning. Thou shalt not kill, and he that kills shall not have forgiveness in this world nor in the world to come. And again I say, thou shalt not kill, but he that killeth shall die. Now, whew, that, there's some serious business. Verse 19 suggests that capital punishment is a possibility. He that killeth shall die. Uh, I don't think that requires capital punishment. If that's something that you're personally against, I think you have all the, the place in the world to be able to feel that way. But it is interesting that here in these two verses, the Lord is crystal clear as to the, the seriousness of the sin of murder. 
Now, in Alma 39, again, don't ever take a single verse without allowing it to have conversation partners with other verses of Scripture. But in Alma 39, it does talk about the three biggest sins. The denying of the Holy Ghost, where he says that is unpardonable. Murder as the second, in which he says it is not easy to obtain a forgiveness. And he says it twice. It is not easy, but that does suggest that it's possible. And then the third level is immorality, which he'll get to in section 42 as well. But I wonder here when he says that no forgiveness in this world nor in the world to come, I wonder if he's being, uh, having a much more specific definition of forgiveness, since the Alma 39 account does suggest that forgiveness is at least possible. I wonder here if it's forgiveness in terms of, oh, it's like it never happened, right? When you are forgiven of your sins, I, the Lord, remember them no more. Again, it's like it never happened at all. Well, murder, it might be a difference between being forgiven versus being pardoned. See, if being forgiven is wipe the slate clean, it never happened. But pardon is, no, you are guilty of this, but I am pardoning you. Remember, pardon was another word that was used back in Alma 39 as opposed to forgiveness. So maybe there is a difference there. Uh, Some have suggested what the Lord talked about, what, in section 132, about uh, David and the murder that he committed against Uriah. I mean, that's a tricky one to make sense of in section 132 as well. But this idea of, can you be pardoned of it, and I will not leave your soul in hell kind of an idea, but flat-out forgiveness like it never occurred, the, the problem with murder is that there's no way to set it right. You know, on most every other commandment, not all, but in most, there's some way to make restitution, to restore things fourfold if you've, if you've robbed, for example, an Old Testament law. But with murder, there's, there's no way to bring back the person that you've killed. Now, again, it's wise to leave all judgment to the Lord uh, for anyone who, for whatever reason, has been, uh, is, is guilty of this kind of sin. Thankfully, it is rare. Uh, but to see, to leave that in the Lord's hands and, and trust in his mercy and his grace for pardon, even if forgiveness in this world or the world to come is not a, a possibility. This is a tough one. I, I, I'm trying to strike a balance here and make sense of this myself. And like I said a few minutes ago, even the capital punishment side adds another wrinkle to this as well. It's hard. Now verse 20, we'll go down through some other commandments from the Ten Commandments. Here in 20, thou shalt not steal. He that stealeth and will not repent shall be cast out. 21, thou shalt not lie. He that lieth and will not repent shall be cast out. Important to see that repentance is mentioned in both of those verses. Uh, The commission of the sin is not what disqualifies you from being among the saints. It's an unwillingness to repent of those sins. I mean, we talked about this a little last week, didn't we? That... uh, Repenting of our sins is an acknowledgement that we still honor the law itself, even though we, we came short of it and broke it. But it's not that I'm rebelling against the law. I'm not trying to get rid of it or replace it. By repenting, it shows I'm, I'm paying homage to the law itself, trying to honor justice uh, and not just, oh, beg for mercy and then let's change the whole thing. No, these people are repenting of their sins. So don't cast them out. They honor the same law that everybody else does. They just fell short of it. But help them stay a part of the group and help them repent of those sins. He then shifts. We went from murder to to robbery to false witness. Now, commandments regarding morality. Verse 22. 
Thou shalt love thy wife with all thy heart, and shalt cleave unto her and none else. Then in 23, He that looketh upon a woman to lust after her shall deny the faith, and shall not have the spirit, and if he repents not, he shall be cast out. And then 24 is more what we would have expected. If we saw, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not uh, bear false witness, then we would expect, thou shalt not commit adultery. And that's what we see in verse 24. Thou shalt not commit adultery, and he that committeth adultery and repenteth not shall be cast out. So you'd think, especially the, the way that the language follows exactly that pattern established in 20 and 21, thou shalt not fill in the blank. Here's one of the Ten Commandments. Because if you do and you don't repent, then you're cast out. That's, that, that's the same pattern followed in all three of these so far, which, by the way, softens things so beautifully and mercifully from the, the Ten Commandments. You just, boom, don't do it. Now here it's, don't do it. But if you do, make sure that you repent. If you don't repent, then you can't be a part of things. You've cast yourself out, okay? You don't want to be part of this covenant community. But I do love that 24 was preceded by 22 and 23. Because in some ways, if you live 22, you'll never get to 23. And if you live 23, you'll never get to 24. So often the Lord draws a line that we absolutely must not cross. But then he steps back a pace or two and draws another line saying, actually, let's, let's not cross this one, okay? Because if you never cross this preliminary line, I guarantee you'll never fall off the edge. Parents usually don't tell their children, oh, go ahead and play at the edge of the cliff as much as you want. Just don't fall off. It's like, no, stay behind this line because then that one never becomes a possibility. Kind of like when the Lord says to, to uh, Adam and Eve, this is when the serpent comes and asks Eve, did God really say not to, to eat the fruit? And Eve says, oh yeah, he said that. In fact, he said another thing too. He said not even to touch it. Hmm, interesting. Would Adam and Eve have fallen if they just kind of, oh, I touched it, didn't do anything. It's not the touching of the fruit that's the problem. The problem is the consumption of it, eating it. But you, if you pass that first line of touching and thumping and squeezing and everything else, you, the, the weird things that you're supposed to do in the supermarket to see if your, if your fruit is fresh, none of that works for me. But if I never touch it, I know I'll never eat it. Back in verse 22, if you truly love your spouse with all your heart, there's no room for anyone else to weasel or work their way in. If you cleave unto them and none else, there's not an option. Remember cleave, the two, the two ways of taking that? To cut it in half, to cleave with like a cleaver, and then to cleave as in to reattach the two? It isn't one versus one. It's not one to one becoming two. It's half and half becoming whole. And if I love my spouse with all my heart, if I cleave unto them and to no one else, guarantee you'll never get close to verse 24. In fact, you won't even bump up against 23. Now, 23, lusting, looking with lust after a woman. This is the Sermon on the Mount as well. The law says, do not commit adultery. But I say, don't even look with lust. In each of those instances in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord is taking the law of Moses and then raising the bar. Because if you can clear this higher level, you're never going to knock off the bar from that lower level. In this case, as he speaks even more uh, broadly of looking with lust, we would call it pornography in our day. Notice the result. He that looketh upon a woman to lust after her shall 
Now this to me, it, it seems like if you start bending rules or crossing lines in this area, where will it ultimately lead? Two things, a denial of the faith and a loss of the spirit. Now again, if you don't repent, you'll be cast out. So repentance is an option, a glorious one. Please take advantage of that gift. I just wonder if we cross that line of, of giving into lust, are, are there other lines that we're going to be willing to cross as well? This is such a protective one. If we can stay within it, not being led out by the lusts of the flesh, the Spirit will remain with us, which helps confirm all these. It, it helps confirm the faith that we should be having and should be exercising. Whereas if we give up on that and cross those lines, we lose the spirit, which ultimately opens us to a loss of faith itself. So if you're struggling with this, if you're starting to cross the 20, verse 22 line and starting to cross the 20, verse 23 line, repent, repent now. Come back to verse 22. And if 23 is the avoid the negative, go back to 22 and start living the positive. There won't be room for lesser things, especially not the ultimate transgression of that line, which would be committing adultery itself. Now in 25, there's still hope even there. He that has committed adultery and repents with all his heart and forsaketh it and doeth it no more, thou shalt forgive. You see, our repentance has to be with all our heart because back to verse 22, that the love that would have helped us avoid that transgression that wasn't there with all our heart either. It's a, it's a when it comes to chastity, uh, fidelity, uh, immor morality, it has to be an all our heart kind of proposition. No room for those other things. But if they'll return and repent with all their hearts, forsake it, do it no more, then forgiveness is a promise there as well. But then 26, if he doeth it again, he shall not be forgiven, but shall be cast out. So there is a danger here of being a repeat offender. And at what point, we'll see that in section 82, that when we uh, commit sins and the former sins return, well, something on this level of seriousness, hopefully that the person's journey through Gethsemane themselves has introduced them well enough to the Lord that maintaining the spirit and keeping the faith will be such that they do not repeat this serious a sin. Verse 27, then we soften considerably, going from those elements of the Ten Commandments that are so serious. Thou shalt not speak evil of thy neighbor, nor do him any harm. I love how broad that commandment is. No, don't even speak evil. Your name is safe in our home. Uh, Elder Creel Kofer gave a talk on that once. It's just beautiful that we're not going to speak evil. Not to your face, not behind your back. We all want, need to be Israelites in whom there is no guile, Okay but also to do others no harm, to try to live in such a way that nothing we do would be harmful to other people. That's, that's a high standard to set for ourselves. It's one the Lord set for us though. Then in verse 28, thou knowest my laws concerning these things are given in my scriptures. He that sinneth and repenteth not shall be cast out. I mean, is any of this stuff new, brothers and sisters? This is the 10, these are the 10 commandments. Verse 29, then, if thou lovest me, thou shalt serve me and keep all my commandments. Beautiful that he includes our motivation there. We saw that in the Sermon on the Mount. If chapter 5 gets us to the point where we can be perfect, 
then chapter 6 then purifies our motives. And here, may your motives for keeping the commandments be out of love. If ye love me, keep my commandments. And added here also a more positive, if you love me, serve me as well. Then verse 30, we shift. We saw the first group of commandments was about missionary work and sharing the gospel. The second set of commandments was more behavioral, especially the big to don'ts that we see from the Ten Commandments. Now we shift in verse 30 to the economic side of the commandments. Specifically, we get to some information about the law of consecration. Edward Partridge's ears are going to perk up for this one. Here's my, my real responsibility. He says in verse 30, Behold, thou wilt remember the poor, and consecrate of thy properties for their support, that which thou hast to impart unto them, with a covenant and a deed which cannot be broken. Now, important verse there. And I love that even before he says to consecrate thy properties, we're told to remember the poor. Remember last week in section 38, that if we esteem all our brethren like unto ourselves, if we really see each other as that, if we are one with each other so that we can be one with God, then sharing my material goods should come naturally to me. Here, if I remember the poor, that's the problem. We just want it out of sight, out of mind. We see someone on the, the, the side of the road and no eye contact. Compare that to Peter and John at the steps of the temple where they see a lame man begging and they fix their eyes upon him. And to the point that he turns his eyes away like, oh, I wanted eye contact, but not that much. And, they, and Peter even says, look on us. I want you to see that we are seeing you. There needs to be a personal connection here. That's what will motivate us to be generous. Why do you think we fast? with our fast offerings. It's not just to save us money. That's what I thought as a kid. I'm like, this is genius. I can give fast offerings and it doesn't cost me anything. I just didn't spend the money on food. Well, that's great. But really, it's meant to help me feel what hungry people feel like for that day. It's really to switch spots with them, to remember the poor. Because for a day, I became one of them. And now that they're on my mind and in my heart and my stomach is growling just like theirs do, I want to help. I want to consecrate my properties for their support. I would hope and pray that they would do the same for me if roles were reversed, since today they have been. In everything we think about in terms of consecrating property, remember the poor first. Esteem them as yourself. Be willing to switch spots with them for a time. And then the law of consecration falls into place with a willingness on our part to actually live it. But also recognize how it's beginning to be described here. We're already starting, the first time consecration of property is mentioned here. And already we're starting to see some order established. We don't want to rush into temporal destruction like John Whitmer said was happening, right? So it's for their support. That which thou hast to impart unto them, here's the order part, with a covenant and a deed which cannot be broken. Now, I wonder who exactly he's referring to there. And I have a feeling it's both. The two parties being the person consecrating initially, and then the second, the person being consecrated too. In other words, the givers and the receivers in this. And I wonder for both sides, if it's a covenant and a deed which cannot be broken, then I'm fully committed to consecrate and to keep consecrating. 
I don't look at what I've given or given up as uh, strings attached. It's still mine, technically. I see somebody else with something that once belonged to me, or it's like, no, no, you, you can't spend it on that. It's my money, and this is what I would do with it. No, it's, it has passed out of your hands, and you have made a covenant and a deed which cannot be broken, that I no longer own those things. I have given them to the Lord. And for the person receiving, there's a covenant and deed also which can't be broken, that this really does belong to you now. This is now your stewardship, and there's private ownership there. That is one of the most important things we can understand about the law of consecration, that part of this covenant and deed was private ownership. Maybe we can be more technical and call it private stewardship, but it still belongs to you. Now, this is really important for us to understand. And it's a principle that will keep coming up because the law of consecration in some ways was so complicated. I mean, economics are, are a big deal. It's kind of how we live our lives from day to day, right? It seems to always be, comes back to that, well, can I pay for that? And I have to be able to feed my family and, and support my family and so on. And so section 42 is only one more contribution in a long list of revelations that will teach the saints how to live their, their life economically. We saw it begin last week, where in section 38, there's this focus on being one, making sure all 12 sons of this just father receive robes for themselves. Now today, section 42, we see the law of consecration begin to be explained more fully. But keep an eye out for the rest of the Doctrine and Covenants, for hints as, as this, line upon line, right? In section 51, we'll talk about portions being appointed and the bishop's storehouse mentioned. In section 54, Lehman Copley had promised to consecrate his farm and then fails to do so. And there's some economic ramifications of that. In section 64, you see the law of tithing explained for the first time. Then in section 70, stewardships over spiritual things, not just temporal things. 72, th th those who receive stewardships are supposed to render an accounting of it. Then in 78, a storehouse for the poor is explained more in depth. 82, how do we manage our stewardships? More about the Lord's storehouse there as well. Section 85, receiving inheritances in Zion is talked about. Section 104, the united firm is described. We'll talk more about the details of that when we get there. But some really fascinating things about consecration in that section. Then section 117 is a powerful one about overcoming our own covetousness. In section 119, then, the law of tithing is clarified. In section 120, we see the council on the disposition of the tithes, which is how the, the church's uh, tithing is distributed or decided upon how it's used even in our day. So please don't think that this is the last time that we'll be talking about this. In fact, in some of my institute classes, to do a single lesson on the law of consecration has been really helpful because then we can take together that, that long list I just gave you and pull and cull all these things together to see, okay, this is what the Lord is explaining as far as economics are concerned. Hopefully, even as we go through the Doctrine and Covenants this year and Come Follow Me, even separated out by weeks in different sections, we'll get a sense as line upon line, precept upon precept, we learn more and more about how to do this. But even at this point here in section 42, with the hint about covenants and deeds which cannot be broken, if we can use that as a, as a reminder that private ownership is still a part of these things, I think we can start to see some of the Lord's, uh, the balancing act he's trying to help us uh, achieve, the proving of contraries when it comes to economics. I'll try to, let me explain it this way, and I, I think we'll see it often throughout the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord trying to help us strike the right balance. 
You see, these are, these are Americans. It's all about capitalism, right? And private ownership, and I can get ahead. We talked about that last time, you know, that, that with social mobility and, and uh, political freedom and equality has allowed for the potential for economic inequality. Because one of the dangers of capitalism is that it can devolve into mere consumerism or commercialism or materialism. Beware of pride, lest you become like the Nephites of old, right? We saw that last week. But what's the opposite? Communism? Is that, what, is that what the Lord is asking? Because if that's the way the saints in Kirtland were trying to live before Joseph came and, and tried to organize some things, no wonder they're, they're barreling towards economic destruction. That kind of, of free-for-all communalism has some problems of its own as well. So if we put the two, to me... And I hope this, this comes across well. As I think of proving contraries economically, to me, the law of consecration is the proving of contraries between capitalism and communism. And the reason that proving contraries is so important is that because either extreme has good things and bad things about it. And if I only have one, then the bad tends to start overcoming the good. The heads and tails on that coin tends to flip towards the tails. Whereas if I keep it in, in tension with its opposite positive, that this is the principle of proving contraries uh, th across the board. That if I can find its opposite, this virtue with its potential for vice has an opposite virtue with its own potential for vice. But almost like magnets that kind of lock into place when you have more than one of them together, the two sides of the, of the contrary lock into place, and if I can keep them both together in this active tension, it keeps either one from flipping over to its tails. So in the contrary of capitalism and communism, on the capitalism side is where you see your individuality, and in the communism side you see your community. On the capitalism side there's ambition, on the communism side there's equality. Capitalism is more about earning, and communism is more about sharing. Now, lest you think that I'm a communist, uh, are there problems there? Oh, huge problems. The people in Kirtland are, are falling into them as we speak. Now, the way we typically think of communism in, our, in the Soviet Union, for example, in, in our day, is being forced into that. It's state ownership of all things. And there's no agency, which automatically ought to alert us that this is, this is not the Lord's plan. The Lord's plan is always about agency. You are choosing to enter into this covenant and deed. The choice was yours. But the other problem with communism is without any kind of private ownership of it, then what's my, what's my motivation to do anything? If it's all about, wait, we're going to be equal and I can receive? Awesome, then I don't, need to, I don't need to worry about contributing. And eventually it's going to fall apart because no one is, it, everything, it's all about uh, withdrawals and never about deposits. But think about this when it comes to the balance between capitalism and communism. In terms of agency, I think the problem with communism is you're blind to choice. You don't have any. But the problem with capitalism is that you're often blind to consequence. At least consequence as far as other people are concerned. I'm big time open to the consequences for myself. If I can get rich, if I can move ahead, if I, the, the ambition that's driving me. But if that makes me blind to the, the workers that I'm exploiting or the consumers that I'm taking advantage of, then that's one of the problems of capitalism that consecration helps us overcome. 
remember the poor. How about motivation? If that's the, the, the fulcrum that we're, we're balancing on. The problem with communism is there's no incentive. But the problem with capitalism is it's often a selfish incentive. Yeah, I want to get ahead, but for whose sake? For my own? How about the fulcrum of autonomy? The problem with communism is there's no sense of ownership. But the problem with capitalism is there's no sense of stewardship. Right? I mean, in communism, it's, there, there's no sense of me, so why even try? But in capitalism, it's all about me, and so why even share? Another way to take this is on the, the fulcrum of work ethic. And in the Book of Mormon last year, we kept seeing among the Lamanites this problem with idleness and idleness, in the two ways that you can spell them. Idleness, I-D-L-E, I'm just idle, I don't do anything. Leading to idleness, I-D-O-L, I mean, if real worship requires real work, then yes, idolatry leads to idleness. These gods of stone, these materialistic things, don't ask anything of me. Well, that's an interesting balancing act between the two sides of this contrary also. Because communism tends to lead towards idleness as in I-D-L-E. What's the point? I'm not going to make a difference for me. Whereas the problem with capitalism is it can lead to idleness, I-D-O-L, that our bank account becomes our God, or the kinds of toys that we can get for ourselves. Remember, that was Bishop Partridge's word. Well, who cares about the toys? I really am fascinated by this, the economic approach in the law of consecration and the proving of contraries, the balancing act that it gives us with a desire to move forward and to grow and to work and to contribute, but to be able to add more to the Lord's storehouse to be able to help the whole. Consecration really is the best of both worlds. The capitalistic side, moving us forward. But the communalistic side, making sure that we don't leave anyone behind. If you are one, you'll be mine. And if you're not, you can't be. Remember that he's trying to establish Zion. We already saw that, well, someday you'll know where the new Jerusalem will be built. But before it becomes your location, can we start letting it become our lifestyle? to be one heart and one mind and dwell in righteousness and have no poor among us? Sharing the gospel, that first set of commandments here in the law, can help us become one heart and one mind. That second set of commandments, the, all the thou shalt nots from the Ten Commandments, that will help us live in righteousness with one another. This third set of commandments in the law, the, the economic ones, they will help us have no poor among us. And that's the kind of Zion that we are trying to build. So back to section 42, verse 31. Inasmuch as ye impart of your substance unto the poor, ye will do it unto me, and they shall be laid before the bishop of my church and his counselors, two of the elders or high priests, such as he shall appoint or has appointed and set apart for that purpose. Now the first part of that verse, if you've imparted unto the poor, you will do it unto me. Now that should remind us of Matthew 25, right? Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Or King Benjamin, if you have, when you are in the service of your fellow being, you are only in the service of your God. So that's a beautiful reminder. He'll, he'll mention it several more times in this revelation. But also this idea of the Lord delegating his authority so that if you're doing it to others and you're doing it to me, please let me be a part of this by including the bishop and his counselors in these transactions. That will ensure that this really is an ordered process in my house of order. You see, this way there will be oversight, 
not just you taking stuff or giving stuff and not knowing the big picture well enough. The beautiful thing about having a bishop and counselor, people that are set apart, ordained to this office, is they have responsibility to kind of see the big picture. And where are the greatest uh, possibilities for contribution? Where are the greatest uh, realities of need? So lay it all before the bishop of my church. Now, one of my favorite examples of this, again, the way it's all private ownership, but it is a decision. Agency is honored. You lay it all before the bishop. He receives that consecration and then returns to you your stewardship. You see, by giving it to the Lord first, by involving him, we've gone from ownership to stewardship. And one of my favorite examples is, I remember seeing this, it was a, a receipt, basically, of a brother named Levi Jackman, who consecrates his all to the Lord and then receives back a stewardship for him to, to be able to work. It's now he owns it. It's, he's a steward for it. He's responsible. There's a sense of, I want to make a difference here and do the best that I can with what I've been given so I can contribute more to others as the church continues to grow. Amazing system. But to see the, the receipt is amazing because when it lists the things that Levi Jackman consecrated to the bishop, this was the list. You see, Levi was a carpenter. He's converted in 1831, so right around this time period. But he consecrated all that he owned to Bishop Edward Partridge. So he's the one running the show here. And here's the list. Sundry articles of furniture, two beds, bedding, feathers, three axes and other tools. I said he was a carpenter. So here, here it all. Here it is, Bishop. Do whatever you need to do with it. Well, what does he re receive as a stewardship in return? Here's the rest of the receipt. Bishop Partridge gives him back sundry articles of furniture. Sound familiar? Two beds, bedding, and feathers. Sound familiar? Three axes and other tools. This should really be sounding familiar. Oh yeah, and one more thing. A parcel of land. You see the debits and credits here? This is such an interesting ledger. Because Levi Jackman gave everything he had and then received it all back exactly what he'd given was returned to him. I mean, you're a carpenter for crying out loud. I don't want to make you farm. You're going to stink at it. <laughs> Let other people do some more of that farming. But your stewardship, you're a good carpenter. You can make a difference. You can help other people with it. So you're going to need your axe. You're going to need your saws. You're going to need your tools. And come to think of it, you are going to need a place to live. So here's a parcel of land that you can build your house. It's probably going to be a nice one since you know how to build things. And when you're done, make sure you're helping other people do the same on their property. I mean, on the one hand, nothing changed for him. What I owned before, I owned later. And then some, which lets us know, wow, the Lord really does want to enrich us with the blessings of eternity. We saw that back in section 38. As well as the land, the, the earth itself is rich and it is God's to give. I am in a better position than I was before, but especially spiritually speaking. And even though everything that was given to me was returned, it feels different now. Because I own it, but it no longer owns me. Because I was able to give it up. I was able to step away and leave it all in the bishop's hands and come what may, I trust the Lord and his servants to discern what I really do need and to be able to give me what they think is best and to keep from me whatever they think is best if they believe that there is someone else that needs it more than I do. Now, I know some may be thinking, well, we don't live the law of consecration that way anymore. And there may be some truth to that, but aren't we in a way 
when we are endowed with power from on high and covenant to keep the Lord's law, aren't we laying it all on the altar? And isn't the Lord, for the most part, saying, actually, why don't you go ahead and keep most of it? And, but just understand that you'll know better what to do with it than you did before. It's a lot like Levi Jackman and Edward Partridge, just no receipt being passed in the middle. But a willingness to, to make the mental shift from ownership to stewardship. I mean, that would be an interesting thing if we each actually did that and kind of took inventory of all the material goods and, and spiritual gifts and intellectual talents and, and creative abilities, whatever, and just said, Heavenly Father, this is, this is me, some total, all my resources, and you can do anything you want with it. And then, spiritually speaking, allow the Spirit to say to you, thank you. Why don't you hold on to it all for safekeeping? You can be kind of the storage site for all of your uh, potential contribution. Just remember as a wise steward that it now belongs to the Lord and, and he can do whatever he wants with it, whenever he calls upon it. Remember those, the parable of the, those stewards with their talents, five for you and two for you and one for you. But even after they've multiplied them and they're ready to give them back to the Lord, the Lord's like, no, 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 keep it. For you with the ten and you with the four. Because now that you've proven yourselves, you've made that mental shift, I can trust you with all things, which is my ultimate goal here. I mean, in many ways, the law of consecration is an incomplete title, when really it's the law of consecration and stewardship. What I'm giving, what I'm receiving, what's happening to my heart throughout these exchanges. In fact, when Wilfred Woodruff uh, this is a, little, a few years later after this, but he writes a letter to Edward Partridge. He's his bishop after all. And this amazing future president of the church writes to this good, uh, kind-hearted, pure-souled bishop and says, Be it known that I, Wilfred Woodruff, do freely covenant with my God that I freely consecrate and dedicate myself together with all my properties and effects unto the Lord for the purpose of assisting in building up his kingdom, even Zion on the earth, that I may keep his law and lay all things before the bishop of his church, that I may be a lawful heir to the kingdom of God, even the celestial kingdom. Did you just catch that Wilfred included himself in that receipt? You can have me. Oh yeah, and all my stuff too. But anything the Lord wants to do. Bishop, I'm here. Put me to work. Lord, I'm yours. Anything I can do to help build thy kingdom, that is consecration. Now back to section 42. In verse 32, it shall come to pass that after they are laid before the bishop of my church, we saw Levi do it, we saw Wilfred do it, after that he has received these testimonies concerning the consecration of the properties of my church, that they cannot be taken from the church, agreeable to my commandments. Every man shall be made accountable unto me, a steward over his own property or that which he has received by consecration as much as is sufficient for himself and family. So we starting to see how this works. I mean, hopefully the explanation that preceded it makes section, uh, verse 32 come in, into, into clear view. It's laid before the bishop. It now belongs to the church. I don't, I, I don't ask for it back. In fact, I love that it's received these testimonies concerning the consecration. 
it's interesting to think that every time you give fast offerings, for example, you are burying your testimony. Every time you pay your tithing, you are burying your testimony. The testimonies concerning the consecration of property. You really are putting your money where your mouth is. You are making a sacrifice of temporal things because of your commitment to spiritual things. It's a beautiful testimony. But now it is, it's no longer mine. And even if I were to leave, I don't keep my receipt and say, I want all my stuff back. I want all my tithing money back. It's like, no, your heart was right at that time. You contribute it to other people around you. Believe me, there's no, there's no bishop, there's no uh, church leaders that are getting rich off your tithing. It was made the common property of the whole church. And so, what do you mean, I, can I have all my fast offerings back? You helped so-and-so pay their utility bills. You helped stock the bishop's storehouse so that a family could eat. Your tithing money helped build this chapel that was surrounded by people that were trying to help you raise your own children. And just like you gave up uh, personal ownership on the front end, you also received personal ownership on the back end. You are made, I mean, the phrases in verse 32 are so key. You are made accountable unto me. That's the beauty of the, the capitalistic side of consecration, because there is accountability. But on the communalistic side of things, it's still, it's not all about you. A steward over his own property. I mean, even that whole phrase is so interesting because your own property, that sounds like ownership. Oh, yeah, it kind of does. Let's, let's, can we just keep it calling it stewardship though? You're going to have to do some mental work on this yourself to prove the contrary, to strike this balance, realizing that yes, it is your own property. Thank you, capitalism. But you are a steward over it. Thank you, communalism. This is a balancing act that we need to try to strike ourselves. Verse 33, he continues with his instruction. Again, if there shall be properties in the hands of the church or any individuals of it more than is necessary for their support, after this first consecration, so there's going to be kind of rounds of this, we all give it to the, the bishop, we receive back our stewardship. Anything beyond that, which is a residue to be consecrated unto the bishop, it shall be kept to administer to those who have not from time to time that every man who has need may be amply supplied and receive according to his wants. You see, this, it can't be a one and done, especially if we're living the first part of this revelation, which was all about missionary work. That means other people will be coming in as well. And if those include the poor, and of course they will, there needs to be enough to help them as well. Remember, that's how we started this whole thing. Remember the poor. Ah, not just the ones that are right here with me now, but others that I cannot yet see. Have I carved out enough within my consecration to allow myself to be generous to people I don't even know yet? Fairly recently in the news, people have been oh, up in arms at oh, how, how wealthy the LDS church happens to be and all these stock portfolios and the, the net worth of the church. Well, think about that in terms of section th uh, 42 verse 33 that residue being kept to administer to those who have not. From time to time, I'm so grateful to belong to a church that follows the law of consecration in its economic principles, that saves for a rainy day, that doesn't go into debt for anything, and that is able to distribute in a heartbeat 
Even before there's a natural disaster somewhere, they're loading the trucks in Salt Lake or at uh, distribution centers and bishop storehouses around the world, and they're headed off to the, to the emergency zone, ready to go make a difference, to administer to those who have not, and to do it from time to time. Even those who were, were uh, up in arms over the wealth of the church, if you were to take that, no matter what number you, you settle on, because there's rumors of all kinds of different numbers, but then divide it by the number of the members of the church. If it came down to helping people survive some kind of economic Armageddon, as we're preparing the world for the second coming, oh, there is, there is enough to be a blessing to each member of the church, but not so much that it's like, what, the church? No, calm down, do some math, understand motive, which is simply to help the Lord's people be able to remember the poor and care for them. That's the first thing he lists in verse 34. And then he adds some others in 35 that I think really need to be kept in balance here in important ways. 34, therefore the residue shall be kept in my storehouse to administer to the poor and the needy, as shall be appointed by the high council of the church and the bishop and his council. So notice there also that we're counseling in our councils. This is not just Edward Partridge by himself. Or in our day, it's not just Bishop Cosset deciding on what to spend the, the church tithing on. This is council. This is two by two or council of disposition of the tithes where it's 15 prophets, seers, and revelators plus the presiding bishopric. That's amazing how careful the, the church is with each of the widow's mites. And if first on the list is caring for the poor and the needy, notice what else is on the list in 35. For the purpose of purchasing lands for the public benefit of the church and building houses of worship and building up of the new Jerusalem, which is hereafter to be revealed. It's amazing how much of the church's tithing fund is meant for the public benefit of the church to purchase property to build temples on. The fact that President Nelson just in, uh, announced 20 more temples being built. Well, if that's part of what is my, my meager tithing contributions are being used for, then I'm all for it. The building up of the new Jerusalem as the church prepares the world to receive her king. That's another reason I really hope to be alive for it. I'd be really excited to see all that would go into the building up of the new Jerusalem. And that's part of what the consecration of property is for as well. And not just property. Again, like Wilfred Woodruff said, myself included. Put me to work. Then verse 36, that my covenant people may be gathered in one in that day when I shall come to my temple. And this I do for the salvation of my people. We saw that back in section 37. The whole reason you're assembling to the Ohio, where you can receive this law that I'm talking about now and be endowed with power from on high is so that they, there can be a temple for me to come to, to save you from the power of your enemies. This for your own sake. 37, it shall come to pass that he that sinneth and repenteth not shall be cast out of the church. That's where we saw the second set of commandments, now coming into the third. And shall not receive again that which he has consecrated unto the poor and the needy of my church. Or in other words, unto me. For inasmuch as you do it unto the least of these, you do it unto me. So there we see it, it clearly put into perspective. This is the Matthew 25 version. This, anything you do unto you, the least of these, my brethren, you've done unto me. But in doing that, like I said earlier from verse 32, you, you, don't, keep your, you don't keep your receipt in terms of th this is what I've given and now I want it all back. 
It's been consecrated unto the poor and the needy. It's been given to God. You, you, there's no way to give it, give it back to you. 39 really puts it in big perspective. It shall come to pass that which I spake by the mouths of my prophets shall be fulfilled. For I will consecrate of the riches of those who embrace my gospel among the Gentiles unto the poor of my people who are of the house of Israel. So interesting that he put the law of consecration in that second coming last days, day of restoration context, where the day of the Gentiles will be fulfilled and the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And now it goes back to the gathering of the remnant of the house of Israel. It's interesting to see in the earliest days of the church, who tended to come into the church? It grew in the United States. It grew in the British Isles. Now, there were a lot of poor converts, believe me, but also so many that were in a position to be able to contribute. But then as the gospel goes around the world and to see places on earth where people struggle, where in, in, a, in the third world, to see first world members contributing more than they need to consume, so that the poor and the needy in other parts of the world, remnants of the house of Israel, can be provided for. The first, last, last, first in economic terms is a beautiful miracle as well. I mean, even just talking with my son as he's preparing for his mission and talking about mission finances and that back in the day, if you got called to an expensive place, wow, good luck saving enough money to be able to serve. And when the church equalized all of that and found, I mean, talk about a beautiful way for missionaries to live the law of consecration themselves. I'm not choosing where I serve, which means I have no say in how much I need or wouldn't need to be able to serve there. And to see every young missionary look at every other missionary in the world and say, we're all in this thing together. So if I don't need as much to live, to, to live in this part of the world, and you need more than that to live in your part of the world, I'm happy to contribute. And those on that side saying, thank you, I wouldn't be able to serve otherwise. And that, that equalization of missionary contribution, in, in my mind, is a beautiful way of living into this law, of consecrating the riches of one group to be able to provide for the poor of another group. Gentiles, house of Israel, uh, we're all becoming one here. Then in verse 40 and 42 especially, it's really interesting to see. Remember last week when we studied section 38? And so often the Lord was giving them things that would actually help them live the law of consecration once it came. Esteem your brother as yourselves. Overcome pride. You see, knowing that, like I said last week, that our, the wallet is our most sensitive body part. And this is a hard thing to do. And it can be hard no matter what side of things you're on. We sometimes talk about the 99% the versus the 1%. That was big in the news a couple of years ago. And President Benson talked about pride from above and pride from below, and even used financial terms in some of that. Is it selfishness in pride from above? Is it covetousness in pride from below? Either way, we're too focused on stuff. Either the stuff we have and don't want to share, or the stuff that we don't have and want to take. Like I said, if there are pros and cons of both sides of the, of the extremes on this contrary, there are strengths and weaknesses that both the haves and the have-nots are going to have to, to grapple with. And verse 40 starts to hint at that. Think about it in these terms. If you're part of the haves, your potential downfall could be selfishness, greed, 
overzealousness, the kind of ambition in the wrong ways, or living beyond our needs. Like, yeah, that really was more than I needed. I, that, was, that should have been surplus. That's something I could have given the Lord. Whereas those that are, this is now pride from below, the have-nots, might they struggle with covetousness or envy or perhaps laziness if it's just assumed that ah, it'll get redistributed, it'll come my way. Or living beyond our means. Again, if one side is living beyond their needs and the other might be tempted to live beyond their means, there's pitfalls and downfalls on either side of the spectrum. And so the Lord gives us the law of consecration to help both sides overcome those challenges. Verse 40, here's for the rich, the haves. Again, thou shalt not be proud in thy heart. Let all thy garments be plain, and their beauty the beauty of the work of thine own hands. Now, I don't think we need to take this fully literally in our day, like, what? I'm not allowed to shop at the store? You know, I can't get clothing that somebody else made? Believe me, I, I don't know if I'd be able to even go out in public if it was clothing of my own making. I remember on my mission when my, my pants split. I didn't even know how to sew it up, so I stapled it. It worked all right. But I do think there's something beautiful in, that, in those phrases about the beauty of creation compared to the beauty of consumption. There's something to be said for just making something or appreciating the, the creator behind what you're consuming instead of just thinking about me, me and commercialism and consumerism and, and look how amazing I look. It's like, no, someone, someone else, this is the beauty of the work of their own hands. And am I even offering them enough or recognizing them enough that they can live off the creation of their own hand? I wonder about that. It's, this is really hard. It's one thing to live the law of consecration this way in the 1830s, when you really can give to the bishop in kind and you get your stewardship back and you know your neighbors and who needs this and who needs that. And you literally are growing your own food and making your own clothing and everything else. In a global economy, this is really difficult and tariffs and price controls and, and wages in foreign countries and everything else. I get that. But I wonder, especially those in a position to make a difference, if there's something we can do, number one, for all of us, can we overcome the pride in our heart? That is something we can all work on. And I wonder, even in our consumption, can we think a little bit more about the creation that went into those things? Because so often it is the poor providing for the rich as far as creation is concerned, without the rich adequately providing for the poor as, as far as consumption is concerned. Now, I know what some of the rich might be saying here, because we heard it all during the 99% versus 1% things that were happening in the news. And it's that, no, I built this, and, I, and this is, I, I've, I've earned this money, and they need to do something themselves. I'm not asking for a, and in fact, the Lord is not requiring an equality of outcome here. This is not some kind of redistribution of wealth that's unfair. And there are those on the, on the rich side that blame the poor for the situation. They're, they credit themselves for their wealth and they blame the poor for their poverty. And again, this just goes back to pride from above. And now it's fighting against pride from below. There are problems on both sides. And so if, if the poor would say to the rich, Quit being so proud in your heart. Then notice what the rich might be thinking of the poor in verse 42. If 40 is counsel to the rich, 42 is counsel to the poor. And honestly, I would say it's counsel for both. Because there are problems in both the haves and the have-nots. Pride from above and pride from below often look a lot alike. 
So might poor people be proud in their heart and proud of what they don't have in terms of pride that I don't fall into materialistic pride like all those rich people do? Mm, careful with that. That's closer to what you're condemning than I think you'd be comfortable with. But look, look at 42. Pride from below. Be careful about being idle. For he that is idle shall not eat the bread nor wear the garments of the laborer. It's, to me, it's fascinating to see 40 compared to 42. And it's like the Lord is speaking to both groups, whichever side you happen to be on. If it's too much of the capitalism side, careful about pride. If it's too much on kind of a lazy, idle, sort of a communalistic side, it'll come my way. Then beware about being idle, being lazy, and not working to earn what you are receiving. We see a similar pair side by side in verse 54 and 55. Well, let's just jump ahead and see it now while we're on the subject. On the capitalistic side, look at verse 55. If thou obtainest more than that which would be for thy support, thou shalt give it into my storehouse, that all things may be done according to that which I have said. So he's repeating what he said back in 31 through 34. Any extra, the surplus, put it back in the storehouse so it can continue to make a difference for people. See, now there's more uh, things that the bishop can draw upon to give other people stewardship. So they, they can increase and then give more. So take advantage of this, the, the positives of capitalism. You're ambitious, you're getting ahead, you're, you're progressing. But then give it to the storehouse so that it can bless everyone and not just blessing yourself. And if, that's, if 55 is counsel for the capitalistic side, 54, go back a verse, is counsel for the, the communistic or the communalistic side. Thou shalt not take thy brother's garment. Thou shalt pay for that which thou shalt receive of thy brother. Remember the problems that John Whitmer described as, as they're rushing headlong into economic destruction? And it's like, wait, oh, that looks good. I like that piece of clothing. Uh, thank you. And you take it. No, that, that is not how consecration is supposed to work. That, that's the problem of communalism without the benefit of, of what capitalism can do to help counterbalance it. We're still dealing with private ownership here. So if you want something that belongs to someone else, you have to pay them for it. And in the process, come to an understanding and agreement of value, of worth, so that it's a, a fair transaction, that, that you can still be one after, instead of one side feeling the other side was, was unfair to them. I mean, I love the, the way the Lord is trying to balance this by speaking to both groups to overcome their inherent weaknesses in 54 and 55 and back in 40 and 42. In fact, what's the verse that's squeezed in between 40 and 42? Look at 41. Let all things be done in cleanliness before me. And I think he's speaking of more clean of heart, purity of motives than he is about sweeping their cabin. If both the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots, the capitalists and the uh, communalists, if both parties can be clean before God, the Lord will inch them towards this common ground in the proving of these economic contraries. It's what consecration is meant to accomplish for all of us. Now, in between these two sets of, of uh, instruction for economic things, he talks about blessing people. As far as sickness and health are concerned, maybe there's a sense of going from uh, health, sickness and health financially to sickness and health physically. But you see in verse 43, some interesting things begin to be taught. Whosoever among you are sick and have not faith to be healed, but believe, shall be nourished with all tenderness, with herbs and mild food, and that not by the hand of an enemy. 
Interesting that he would put it in those terms. They have enough faith to believe in the gospel. They have enough faith to be members of the church, but not quite enough faith to be healed of their sicknesses. Well, that's okay. Meet them where they are and care for them physically. Nourish them. Don't chide them for their lack of faith. They have enough faith to be a part of things. Help them with whatever you can offer. Then in 44, the elders of the church, two or more, shall be called and shall pray for and lay their hands upon them in my name. And if they die, they shall die unto me. And if they live, they shall live unto me. Accept the Lord's will, like we just learned from President Nelson, to have the faith to stop the rain and have the faith to endure the downpour, to trust God's will, live or die. Verse 45, thou shalt live together in love. Talk about a commandment that would help them live the law of consecration. This is, again, like we saw in section 38, of esteem your brother as yourselves. If you're struggling to give out of your abundance or struggling not to desire or covet out of your want, then learn to live together in love. Nothing will help with consecration more than charity. That's what I love about 1 Corinthians 13 when Paul says, if you give all your goods to provide for the poor and have not charity, it's like, wait a minute, what do you mean have not charity? I just gave all that charity. Well, yeah, charity was something you gave, but it wasn't something you had to motivate you. Here, the real charity, pure love of Christ, if you live together in love, then the act of charity will naturally result. Here, tying it back into health and sickness physically and not just financially, he says, as you live together in love, insomuch that thou shalt weep for the loss of them that die, and more especially for those that have not hope of a glorious resurrection. This is the beautiful verse about Jesus weeping with Mary and Martha after Lazarus died. He knew that he was about to raise him from the, from the dead, but to mourn with those that mourn, to love the survivors enough that you would weep with them over the loss of your loved ones, and if important to mourn over physical death, oh, to mourn even more over spiritual death, those without a hope of a glorious resurrection. In verse 46, it shall come to pass that those that die in me shall not taste of death, for it shall be sweet unto them. Joseph Smith made that promise to William Huntington once for a beautiful act of self-sacrifice on William's part. And Joseph said to him, I promise you in the name of the Lord, you will not taste of death. That didn't mean that William Huntington was going to live forever. But when he died as an old man, so peacefully, it was something that was not bitter to him. He did not taste of death. It was sweet unto him. Compared to verse 47, they that die not in me, woe unto them, for their death is bitter. No wonder Abinadi talks about, and Paul as well, about, where, oh, death, where is thy sting? Well, that bitterness, there's no sting there. I trust in the glorious resurrection that is on the other side. Verse 48, again, it shall come to pass that he that hath faith in me to be healed and is not appointed unto death shall be healed. Other examples in the next few verses. He that hath faith to see shall see. He who hath faith to hear shall hear. The lame who hath faith to leap shall leap. And then 52, and they who have not faith to do these things, but believe in me, have power to become my sons, and inasmuch as they break not my laws, thou shalt bear their infirmities. 
So 52 and 43 go hand in hand. You don't have faith to be healed, but you do believe in the Lord. Bear with them. Be tender. Nourish them. And in verse 52, you can become my sons and daughters. There seems to be a prioritization of the spiritual over the physical in all of these verses. And for those uh, that are left behind to help them, bear their infirmities. Nourish them with tenderness. Now some have wondered, well, if at the end of verse 48, if they're not appointed unto death, well, doesn't that just leave it all in the Lord's hand and His will is going to be done regardless? Well, to a degree, yes. For those who are appointed unto death, then it's the Lord's will. It is that person's time. And the Lord is going to bring them home, no matter how many faith-filled prayers or powerful priesthood blessings they receive. And hopefully under those circumstances, we can accept the Lord's will and move forward in faith, mourning with those who mourn. But that's still only one group, those who are appointed unto death. What about those who are not? Does our faith have anything to do with God's will? Especially when it comes to not just whether or not they will survive, but how quickly their, will, their recovery will be, or what that recovery will look like. Is there room for our faith to heal and a faith to be healed? For those who are just kind of wash their hands of it and, and are uh, determinists or fatalists saying, well, only God's will is going to be done anyway, so why even try? I mean, look around the world. All kinds of things are happening that are not the Lord's will. And yet the Lord allows those things to happen because he honors our agency and gives us space to exercise our faith and our works and try to make changes. Well, is every prolonged sickness the Lord's will? Or is it space for us to exercise our faith, to call upon the Lord and make, make our will known? I mean, when the Lord said, Father, not my will, but thine be done, he had expressed his will to begin with. I mean, how can we put our will upon the altar if we don't have a will to begin with? And exercising faith that God can honor that, even as we exercise our submission, if he chooses not to. Yes, so much depends on the Lord's will, and it is wise of us to honor that. But at the same time, so much depends on our faith, and we are wise to exercise it. Then, verse 53, he comes back to the financial for a, for a moment. Thou shalt stand in the place of thy stewardship. 54 and 55 we saw. And then 56, he talks about scripture for a while. Remember, Joseph and Sidney are hard at work on the Joseph Smith translation. Thou shalt ask, and my scriptures shall be given, as I have appointed, and they shall be preserved in safety. That's actually going to be some people's stewardship themselves when it comes to printing these revelations. Remember, these are my words. Beware how you hold them. Well, this will be a part of somebody's stewardship as well. 57. It is expedient that thou shouldst hold thy peace concerning them and not teach them until ye have received them in full. I mean, this was a bold undertaking. It's one thing to produce new scripture with the Book of Mormon or the Doctrine and Covenants, but to take American Protestantism's sacred cow, the Bible, and start to make editorial insertions and deletions and changes. Wow, that was gutsy. So don't talk openly about this project until, you've, until you're well underway. Verse 58, I give unto you a commandment that then ye shall teach them unto all men, for they shall be taught unto all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. I don't want to keep it from them indefinitely. Just get closer to completion. 
And then 59, thou shalt take the things which thou hast received, which have been given unto thee in my scriptures for a law, to be my law to govern my church. Remember that they are teaching the principles of the gospel as found in the Bible and the Book of Mormon. The revelations that are coming in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 20, the Lord's Constitution, section 42, the Lord's Law. This is how we live the, the gospel. This is how we run the church. Then in verse 60, he that doeth according to these things shall be saved. He that doeth them not shall be damned, if he so continue. It's interesting that last phrase, if you, don't, if you continue in this, that's the problem. Making mistakes isn't the problem. Those you repent of. But continuing to make them, that's what will damn you. And if we think about a dam, it's interesting that that stops things from continuing. The problem of not uh, living worthy of the highest degree of the celestial kingdom is that our damnation consists of a cessation of progress. We can't continue to grow unto God. Well, here the flip side is true. I don't want you to continue those things, and so you'll be damned. Can we pause negative behavior and give you time to think about things and hopefully come to your senses and repent of your sins. 61, he then says, if thou shalt ask, thou shalt receive revelation upon revelation, knowledge upon knowledge, that thou mayest know the mysteries and peaceable things, that which bringeth joy, that which bringeth life eternal. Doesn't that sound a little like what Bishop Partridge was talking about? Oh, my little toys and, and worldly possessions. Who cares about those things? To have the mysteries of God unfolded to my view, to find true joy, eternal life, no matter how hard mortal life might end up being. Talk about eternal perspective. Edward Partridge had it, and so many of the early saints had it as well. It's what allowed them to consecrate so fully. Verse 62, he then says, Thou shalt ask, and it shall be revealed unto you in mine own due time, where the new Jerusalem shall be built. In the meantime, continue to consecrate so that we have the funds to build it when the time comes. Verse 63, Behold, it shall come to pass that my servants shall be sent forth to the east and to the west, to the north and to the south, tying us back into the first part of this revelation, the, the law given to the Lord's full-time servants. 64, Even now let him that goeth to the east teach them that they shall be converted to flee to the west, and this in consequence of that which is coming on the earth and of secret combinations. Sound a little like what we saw in section 38 about the enemy in secret chambers seeking our lives? We'll go and warn the world to flee the world's wickedness, to come and gather to the saints where they can overcome those things themselves. Verse 65, Behold, thou shalt observe all these things, and great shall be thy reward. Isn't that how he started section 41? The blessings that have come in the wake of your sacrifice? For unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but unto the world it is not given to know them. It is amazing the things that we can know by the power of the Holy Ghost, truths of which the world remains ignorant. He continues in 66, Ye shall observe the laws which ye have received, and be faithful. And ye shall hereafter receive church covenants, such as shall be sufficient to establish you both here and in the new Jerusalem. Therefore he that lacketh wisdom let him ask of me, and I will give him liberally, and upbraid him not. That must have been a sweet experience for Joseph to be reminded of those words. Never had any passage of Scripture come with more power to the heart of men than this did at that time to mine. The Lord really does answer us. And Joseph himself is a witness of that. 
It is beautiful how 66 leads to 67 and 68. If you'll observe what you've been given, if you'll be faithful with what you've received, then of course you'll receive more. That's how lion goes to lion. That's how precept grows into precept. You act on what you've been given. You keep today's commandments and it prepares you for tomorrow's. And it, it reassures you and encourages you to keep on asking because you've had experience with receiving the revelation that then comes. 69, lift up your hearts and rejoice. For unto you the kingdom, or in other words, the keys of the church have been given. Even so, amen. Joseph Smith has received the keys of the kingdom. That presiding authority really is the kingdom itself. Now it's a matter of building according to the design that they received from heaven. Verse 70, the priests, the teachers, they'll receive their stewardships, even as the members will. We'll all have something to do in this building up of the kingdom. It'll just all be governed by those who hold the keys. And then in 71, the elders or high priests who are appointed to assist the bishop as counselors in all things are to have their families supported out of the property which is consecrated to the bishop for the good of the poor and for other purposes as before mentioned. They are to receive a just remuneration for all their services, either a stewardship or otherwise, as may be thought best or decided by the counselors and bishop, and the bishop also shall receive his support or a just remuneration for all his services in the church. Now, we're not talking about a, a paid clergy here, because in many ways, the, his role as bishop was more, oh, more temporal than clerical or, or clergy-like anyway. Yes, he can preach the gospel, and he'll do that. But re he really does become the embodiment of the Aaronic priesthood, more than the Melchizedek priesthood, even though he'll hold both. You're responsible for the temporal affairs. And as Edward Partridge is told, you are leaving behind your merchandise and giving all your time to the church. This is for full-time servants of the Lord. Does this make them a paid clergy? No. But is there a living allowance that allows them to survive and keep feeding their families? Yes. Otherwise, only the rich would be able to afford to give full-time service. Remember, all this is is giving everything to the Lord and then receiving back your stewardship. And it's amazing to see like general authorities in our day, for example, called to leave their merchandise, dedicate full-time service to the Lord. Talk about consecration. You can have all of me. And then they're hoping and trusting that the Lord will return to them whatever stewardship is required to be able to continue to provide for their families. They're not seeking employment. They're not applying for a job. This is not a paid clergy. And to understand the ideas behind consecration and stewardship, I think those verses in 71, 2, 3, help us make sense of the living allowance that is given to full-time general authorities. It is their stewardship and they are worthy of receiving it. Verse 74 then, he continues, Verily I say unto you that whatsoever persons among you, having put away their companions for the cause of fornication, it's like, what, where's this coming from? It's like, yeah, we're kind of weaving together all these separate strands in this. We're nearing the end of this revelation, and we've been talking about financial things and missionary things and, and behavioral things. Well, let's, can we talk one more? Before I let this go, can we talk about marriage again for a moment? If you put away your companions, in other words, divorce, because of fornication, or in other words, if they shall testify before you in all loneliness of heart that this is the case, you shall not cast them out from among you. This is where forgiveness is possible even after a sin on the severity of adultery. 
If there is repentance, then there is forgiveness. Don't cast them out. But, 75, if ye shall find that any persons have left their companions for the sake of adultery, and they themselves are the offenders, and their companions are living, they shall be cast out from among you. Now, 74 and 75 are interesting, because fornication is mentioned in 74. 75 mentions adultery. But 74, it's the cause of fornication. 75, it's the sake of adultery. And I really wonder if it's kind of a before or after kind of a thing, or what's the motivation here? It's one thing to get a divorce because of immorality. It's another thing to get a divorce in pursuit of immorality. I hope this makes sense. In some ways, these verses dramatize how, how serious divorce is in the Lord's eyes. We talked more about that last year in the Book of Mormon when we went through those verses in the Sermon at the Temple in Third Nephi. Is there just cause for divorce? 74 confirms that. On the level of immorality, there is justification. It's not automatic. It's, it's not you're required to divorce. I've seen amazing examples of people who are able to work through those issues and forgive their partner who was unfaithful to them. But 75 shifts things if, it's for this, if they left their companions for the sake of adultery, when they are the ones who are an offender. I wonder if he's hinting at, or at least opening the possibility for us to consider those who are seeking some kind of an excuse to get rid of their companion because they already are planning on their next marriage partner. If it's divorce for the sake of adultery. Again, there's just something about that language as I try to apply it to our modern situation. Almost a David and Bathsheba kind of a thing where, well, if we do this, then I'm justified in, in marrying later because the, the obstacles are out of our, our way. Yeah, that was for the sake of adultery. And the Lord sees right through that. 76 and 77, he continues down that path with uh, divorce. Again, I say unto you that ye shall be watchful and careful with all inquiry that ye receive none such among you if they are married. And if they are not married, they shall repent of all their sins or ye shall not receive them. Those verses to me suggest don't act like you're single if you're not. Like let, I always see those whenever uh, there's a, a something for a young single adult or a, a single adult kind of activity. And it always says divorces must be finalized. And the, the, I, I sense that in verse 76. You've got to be watchful. You've got to be careful. Inquire into these things so that you don't receive any among you that are in those situations. They, they seem single. They look single. But they are actually married. We don't want to lead to any kind of divorce for the sake of adultery. We don't want to treat people as if they are single if they are technically or legally married. Be, ready, be careful. Be watchful and careful in those things. For the rest of this revelation, then, he focuses on church discipline. We've dealt with these behavioral kinds of things, and, and so he, he returns to that. Verse 78, Every person who belongeth to this church of Christ shall observe to keep all the commandments and covenants of the church. We know we're still human, and so mistakes are made, sins are committed. And so 79, it shall come to pass that if any persons among you shall kill, we'll go back to that most drastic one, they shall be delivered up and dealt with according to the laws of the land. For remember that he hath no forgiveness, and it shall be proved according to the laws of the land. We'll see a lot of this repeated about the laws of the land. Some things really do fall outside the jurisdiction of the church because there's already legal things in place that would, that would cover those kinds of transgressions. Murder being a huge one. 
The church is not here to provide sanctuary for murderers. Uh, when somebody comes in and talks to a bishop about significant kinds of things, uh, this being one, but anything that's illegal and not just immoral, the bishop typically recommends for that person, you need to go uh, report this to the authorities. In fact, in cases of abuse and things, the bishop themselves are required to report those kinds of things and work it out with the law of the land. And we'll be able to also help you work it out through the laws of God. Verse 80, if any man or woman shall commit adultery, he or she shall be tried before two elders of the church or more. And every word shall be established against him or her by two witnesses of the church and not of the enemy. But if there are more than two witnesses, it is better. So in our day, we see church disciplinary councils or church membership councils, as they're called. This is not an enemy kind of a thing. We're not, we don't want witnesses of the enemy. We want justice to prevail as well as mercy and, and striking the balance between the two. 81, he or she shall be condemned by the mouth of two witnesses, and the elder shall lay the case before the church, and the church shall lift up their hands against him or her, that they may be dealt with according to the law of God. And if it can be, it is necessary that the bishop be present also. Presiding authority, judge in Israel, priesthood keys. Verse 83, thus ye shall do in all cases which shall come before you. We'll see more about that idea of laying the case before the church and the church lifting up the hands. We do that behind closed doors in a bishopric or a stake presidency and high council, those two different levels of church membership uh, councils, trying to help determine the best way to help this person access the atoning grace of Jesus Christ. I've been a part of a lot of church disciplinary councils, and those have been some of the most spiritual experiences I've ever had. As someone comes and just is laying themselves at the feet of the Savior, like the woman taken in adultery, and Jesus calmly riding in the dust to allow the tension to diffuse and people to drop their stones so that none are flying at one another, that the soul of the sinner can be saved. That's the, that's the goal of all that's being described here. Verse 84, if a man or woman shall rob, he or she shall be delivered up unto the law of the land. Verse 85, same thing if they steal. Verse 86, same thing if they lie. It's interesting, in each of those verses, it's the law of the land, because those things are illegal. But in 87, if he or she do any manner of iniquity, he or she shall be delivered up unto the law, even that of God. So you see a difference here between the law of the land and the law of God, similar to the difference between crimes and sins. Not everything that's immoral is illegal. You get a good sense of this in the book of Mosiah, where you have Alma and Mosiah, chief priest and king, and they're kind of hot potatoing, like, I don't know, what should we do with this? And Alma's like, well, they committed these sins, king, they're your subjects. And the king's like, yeah, but this is not crime. This is not criminal behavior. This is, this is immoral behavior. This is not breaking the laws of men. It's breaking the laws of God. So I'm amazed in the Book of Mormon how clearly they distinguish between church and state on this. You'll see the same thing with the way they treat Korahor. It's really interesting that how careful they are in this. And we see some carefulness here also. 88, if thy brother or sister offend thee, thou shalt take him or her between him or her and thee alone. And if he or she confess, thou shalt be reconciled. We saw glimpses of that back in section 28 with Oliver Cowdery and Hiram Page. Go take him at, between him and thee, between he and thee alone. This doesn't have to become some kind of a public tongue lashing. But we're not putting them in the pillory to get uh, rotten garbage thrown in their face. If this can be resolved privately, then all the better, so that people can repent privately as well. Now, in verse 89, if that doesn't work, 
if he or she confess not, thou shalt deliver him or her up unto the church, not to the members, but to the elders. And it shall be done in a meeting, and that not before the world. So there's order here. We're not calling out some uh, accused person over the pulpit. It's not to the members, it's to the elders, it's in a meeting, so this is official, it's not before the world. It's amazing how careful the church tries to be to honor the privacy and respect the dignity of the person that, is, that has committed these major transgressions. Even in some of the more visible cases that we've seen, it's never the church that is trying to increase the visibility. It's always the person themselves that is, I don't know, wanting some kind of a, a press release about all the horrible things the church is doing to me. It's amazing the church doesn't even defend itself, doesn't even give its side of the story, because that would impinge upon the other person's side of the story, and it's their privacy and dignity that, is trying, that the church is trying to protect. Now, there may be times that the results of a disciplinary council need to be announced, particularly in the case of a high-profile church leader, for example, so that those that had been under their, their stewardship can realize, oh, okay, something happened here. In verse 90, if thy brother or sister offend many, he or she shall be chastened before many. If anyone offend openly, he or she shall be rebuked openly, that he or she may be ashamed. And if he or she confess not, he or she shall be delivered up unto the law of God. But, other hand, if any shall offend in secret, he or she shall be rebuked in secret, that he or she may have opportunity to confess in secret to him or her whom he or she has offended, and to God, that the church may not speak reproachfully of him or her. I, I hear this all the time, that, oh, the church is a shame culture. It's a shame culture. Actually, it was intended to be a guilt culture. There's a difference. Shame is more of the public, and, it, and shame culture, it's like I, I, my dignity as a human being has been attacked, whereas guilt culture is more private. I have sinned against God. I want to change. It's a softening of heart. It's interesting that back in verse 91, it mentions shame, but that's only for those who have been openly doing these kinds of things, where there is a social aspect of their sin, and therefore a social aspect of their condemnation. The punishment truly is fitting the crime. But by and large, this is not out to shame people. Look at the end of verse 92. We don't want the church to speak reproachfully of the person who was guilty of that offense. We want to cheer one another on. We want to offer one another grace and understanding, an invitation to come and be with us. All of this casting out that was mentioned in this section is simply for people who refuse to repent and therefore don't want to be a part of the gathered faithful. We don't want to reproach anyone. And like I said before already, the section ends with verse 93, thus shall ye conduct in all things. Section 42 in many ways is an expansion or continuation of what we saw in section 20. The articles and covenants of the church. Well, here's now the law. This is how you conduct all of these things. Now, at the same time period, as people are still thinking about second coming, especially gathering together to be able, we saw this in this revelation, uh, as you're out on missions, gather people in uh, to prepare them for New Jerusalem and the coming of Christ, to avoid the secret combinations that are out there. Well, section 43 really emphasizes that second coming and emphasizes the order that needs to prevail in the church and kingdom as we prepare the world for that second coming. Remember I said, we've got this Mrs. Hubble that's coming in saying, well, I'm a prophetess, and yes, I believe the Book of Mormon, but, I, but, I, but I'm receiving all these other things as well. 
Remember these strange spiritual manifestations that are taking place that without leadership and that individual revelation is, is running amok in the absence of institutional revelation to, to organize things. So in section 43, we're going to see some second coming kinds of preparation. We're going to also see some institutional revelation to help balance out the individual revelation. So in verse 1, he begins, O hearken, ye elders of my church, give ear to the words which I shall speak unto you. Calling us to attention as always. For behold, verily, verily, I say unto you that ye have received a commandment for a law unto my church. That's what section 42 was. But how'd you get it? Through him whom I have appointed unto you to receive commandments and revelations from my hand. Institutional revelation comes through those that have institutional keys to receive it. Remember we saw that back in section 42. It's not going to come in some mysterious way. It's going to be people that are ordained by the regular heads of the church. It will be known by the church that they have been ordained to these things. I mean, I restored the priesthood for a purpose. I don't have to work outside it now. Verse 3, This ye shall know assuredly, that there is none other appointed unto you to receive commandments and revelations until he be taken, if he abide in me. And if he doesn't, verse 4, Verily, verily, I say unto you that none else shall be appointed unto this gift, except it be through him. For if it be taken from him, he shall not have power except to appoint another in his stead. So I think this is the third time we've seen it very clear. You're all replaceable. Okay? And Joseph, if it's time for you to be replaced, the only power you'll have is to find your replacement. So abide in me so that you can receive revelations and commandments as only my key-holding, presiding authority can. Verse 5, This shall be a law unto you, that ye receive not the teachings of any that shall come before you as revelations or commandments. And this I give unto you, that you may not be deceived, that you may know that they are not of me. This is so similar to what we saw in section 28 about Hiram Page. Verse 7, Verily I say unto you, that he that is ordained of me shall come in at the gate. He doesn't sneak in through the window. He doesn't pop down the chimney. He comes in at the gate for all to see. He's ordained, as I have told you before, to teach those revelations which you have received and shall receive through him whom I have appointed. This was Oliver Cowdery as Aaron to Joseph Smith as Moses. He receives the vertical and then you declare faithfully the horizontal. Institutional revelation confirmed and then shared with others through individual revelation. Now behold, I give unto you a commandment, that when ye are assembled together, ye shall instruct and edify each other, that ye may know how to act and direct my church, how to act upon the points of my law and commandments, which I have given. Remember, that's why they assembled earlier, to agree upon God's word. Well, they're asked to do the same thing here. We'll see more of it in the next Revelation, section 44, as conferences are coming together. Do you know how to lead the church? Do you know how to direct it? Do you know how to act within it? Still unsure? Well, come together, assemble yourselves, instruct each other, edify each other. No wonder there's so many meetings that we attend, because there's a lot of possible confusion when it's a lay clergy coming together, just try to, to move the work forward. But to be edified, to be instructed, so I know how to lead the Lord's church. Verse 9, Thus ye shall become instructed in the law of my church, and be sanctified by that which ye have received and ye shall bind yourselves to act in all holiness before me. Instructed, sanctified, bind yourselves. Remember that great phrase from Abigail, to be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord? 
because we've made covenants with him. Inasmuch as you do this, verse 10, glory shall be added to the kingdom which ye have received. And inasmuch as you do it not, it shall be taken, even that which ye have received. It's a sliding scale. We're moving, climbing forward or sliding back. So verse 11, purge ye out the iniquity which is among you. Sanctify yourselves before me. It reminds me of what he said earlier about ye are clean, but not all. And not all, are we talking about you individually aren't all clean? Clean as in completeness? Or is he talking about all y'all, as they say in the South? And the, you are not all clean in terms of collectiveness. You're all together on this. So purge ye out the iniquity which is among you. Is that part of what we saw about discipline back in section 42 and the law? About those who don't, do not repent being cast out, purging out the iniquity among us collectively, but also more personally, am I purging out the iniquity which is in me? Am I sanctifying myself before the Lord as I repent and ask the Lord for his forgiveness? Verse 12 and 13 then goes back to something we saw back in section 24 about Joseph has spiritual gifts, but not so many temporal gifts. And will you sustain him in the spiritual and help support him in the temporal so that he has time to focus on what matters most? Believe me, he's put all on the altar of consecration. Does he deserve to receive back some kind of stewardship? Remember we saw in section 41, just a, place, a, room to, a place to live and to translate. It's all part of his, his responsibilities as president of the church. So in 12, if you desire the glories of the kingdom, Appoint ye my servant, Joseph Smith, Jr., and uphold him before me by the prayer of faith. There's his spiritual gifts. And now 13, again I say unto you, that if you desire the mysteries of the kingdom, the kind that are coming forth as he translate the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, then provide for him food and raiment, and whatsoever thing he needeth to accomplish the work wherewith I have commanded him. Provide for him temporally so that he can provide for you spiritually. I do not want President Nelson spending his time at some part-time job to be able to make ends meet. I'm happy to provide anything I can to give him food and raiment so that he can continue to give me the mysteries of the kingdom, as only a prophet can. In verse 14, if you do it not, he shall remain unto them that have received him, that I may reserve unto myself a pure people before me. Interesting there that even if you don't treat him like a prophet, that's okay. He will still remain a prophet to those who accept him as such. There's an interesting verse at the end of Matthew 10 where the Lord says something that always confused me. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. Now, what, what is the Lord saying there? I think he's given us the two options. Here's this person that I have called, but do you receive them? And if so, in what way? Do you see him as a prophet or do you just see him as a righteous man? Or just kind of a nice old grandfatherly figure, okay? Yeah, choice is totally yours. I remember Sister Bonnie Oscarson gave a great talk several conferences ago. Is, is this God's kingdom upon the earth or is it just a social organization? Are those prophets, seers, and revelators or is it like, I don't know, the board of directors? Based on that verse from Matthew, it's like, how do you approach this? Is Joseph Smith just a nice guy? Then following a nice guy, what do you get for following a nice guy? Well, whatever a nice guy can give you. But if he's a prophet and you receive him in the name of a prophet, then the, re the reward for following that 
Yeah, that's a prophet's reward. Uh, that's the sense I get from verse 14. If you don't receive him as a prophet, then fine. You will get no glories or mysteries of the kingdom. But for those who do, those glorious mysteries will be forthcoming. In verse 15, again, I say, Hearken ye elders of my church, whom I have appointed. Ye are not sent forth to be taught, but to teach the children of men the things which I have put into your hands by the power of my spirit. That is one different thing about being a full-time missionary. I do a lot of interfaith work. And it's interesting that sometimes the students are like, oh, interfaith? I served a mission. I did a ton of interfaith. It's like, well, that's, that's different. You weren't open to their faith. You were trying to share with them yours. And that's what missionary work is all about. So it's fine. Here, it's you're not there to be taught. You're there to teach. I mean, there is some being taught. That's verse 16. You are to be taught from on high. So sanctify yourselves and you shall be endowed with power that you may give even as I have spoken. I mean, you do have to learn from something. You've got to learn from the Lord. You're going to be endowed with power. There's this endowment that I have waiting for you. So please be open to learn from that. But when you're out as a full-time missionary, you're not there to learn everybody else's beliefs. You're there to teach the truth. But I would say that sometimes we, we hold on to that too long. And we come home from our missions and still refuse to be taught by anyone else. I'm only, no, you're here to listen to me and I'm not here to listen to you. And yet, to me, some of my sweetest experiences and some of the things that really soften another person to hear what we have to share is being open to what they have to share with us. I think we can, do so, we can be so much better missionaries and better teachers if we were better learners and listeners first. Again, full-time missionary work is different. You are called and set apart to go and share the gospel. You don't have time to do, engage in all the interfaith work that a member of the church can do for the rest of their lives. But there is something to be said for having a listening ear before you have an open mouth. Now verse 17, he's getting to this point where he's going to shift now from, okay, do we understand how the church is supposed to run? We have, there's an order here. Yes, there's democracy, but there's hierarchy. Yes, there's individual, but there is institutional. Yes, there's horizontal, but there is vertical, right? Well, now we're going to shift towards this thought about the second coming. Keeping it all in context as far as the timetable is concerned. In verse 17, hearken ye. That's how he started the revelation. Now he gets our attention again. Okay? If you started losing me on that, focus. Okay? This is really important. Hearken ye, for behold, the great day of the Lord is nigh at hand. So the sun is about to rise. Or in this case, the S-O-N sun is about to descend. The day of the Lord is nigh. And then in verse 18, he describes something. I, I love section 43, verse 18. I've sometimes joked with my students. I've asked them before, how do you feel about the snooze bar on your alarm clock? And they're like, oh, I love, I love the snooze bar. I mean, when that alarm sounds and I'm so, oh, I do not want to get up. Some people will even set their alarm uh, a long time before they have to wake up. So they have the luxury of hitting that snooze bar several more times. Kind of slowly, gradually wor work their way into being awake. Some people look at that going, that's not stupid. Uh, if you're going to be sleeping that time anyway, just enjoy the rest of the, those last 10 minutes, you know, half an hour of sleep. And it's like, well, yeah, but this way I know not only get the extra sleep, I know that I'm getting the extra sleep. I'm one of those fans of the snooze bar, if you can't tell. And to my fellow fans in my classes, I've asked, do you know who invented the snooze bar? I mean, genius technology, right? Uh, who came up with the idea? And they're like, it's never crossed my mind. I have no idea. I don't even know who invented the clock, let alone the alarm clock, let alone the alarm clock with the snooze bar. And I say, it was the Lord. 
he revealed alarm clock technology. And they're like, you're crazy. What are you talking about? I'm like, yeah, it's in the Doctrine and Covenants. What? Yeah, section 43, verse 18. Read it and look for snooze bar technology. For the day cometh that the Lord shall utter his voice out of heaven. The heavens shall shake and the earth shall tremble and the trump of God shall sound both long and loud and shall say to the sleeping nations, Ye saints, arise and live. Ye sinners, uh, stay and sleep until I shall call again. Did you catch the snooze bar? I mean, all of section 18 has such an alarm clock terminology. The day is coming, okay, sun's coming up, time to get up and get going. The, voice, the Lord shall utter his voice out of heaven. I remember as a kid, I, I loved going to seminary. Go figure. I love, I love teaching and learning the gospel. But uh, my older sister, she liked seminary too, but she also liked bed a little more than I did. Uh, and so I'd be up, and she was older. She had to drive us. And so I'd, I'd go upstairs and wake her up. Wake up. Time to get ready for seminary. And then I'd go down and, you know, go take my shower. Then I'd come back up, make sure she was ready, and she was still asleep. Like, I'm not your snooze bar. So I'd wake her up again, and then I'd go and have breakfast. And I'd come back, and she snoozed me again. Uh, well, it started with me uttering my voice out of heaven, or in this case, from downstairs. Yeah, Christian, it's time to get up. But then this next one, the heavens shall shake and the earth shall tremble. You ever had to use some of those approaches to get somebody out of bed? Where you're jumping on the bed or you're shaking their mattress, just trying to, to rouse them. Then this next one, the trump of God shall sound both long and loud. I actually, I mean, desperate times call for desperate measures. I actually went and asked my scoutmaster if I could borrow the bugle. Our scout troop had one. Nobody knew how to play it, but it was kind of fun to just blow on it and see what the sound that came out. Well, I didn't know how to play it either, but I could make some sound come out. And I even used that on my sister. The trump sounded both long and loud, saying to the sleeping nations, or in this case, my big sis, ye saints, arise and live and get in the car and take me to seminary, will ya? It's time to get up. It's time to get going. It's time to repent of our sins because that's the sound of the alarm clock in our day. Ye saints, arise and live. Meanwhile, those who probably have every intention of waking up eventually, but just not right now. Well, ye sinners, stay and sleep until I call again because I will. My personal alarm clock is on a nine-minute snooze. The Lord's alarm clock is on a six-month one. We just heard the alarm with General Conference. Will we arise and live? Will we heed the prophet's voice and change? Or will we, uh, not quite yet. I do intend to get up eventually, but uh, snooze. Come talk to me in October. It's just a scary thing to realize what we might be missing in between snooze bars. I don't know if you've ever slept through an alarm or thought you hit the snooze bar and you accidentally hit the alarm off instead and then the alarm didn't sound and you slept through the rest and you actually missed something you really wanted to be awake for. Well, that might happen spiritually speaking as well. So what do we do instead? We wake up when the alarm sounds. Verse 19, we get dressed, we gird up our loins lest we be found among the wicked. And now that we're awake, verse 20, we can wake up everybody else. Lift up your voices and spare not. Call upon the nations to repent. That's the alarm. Both old and young, both bond and free, saying, prepare yourselves for the great day of the Lord. 
He'll say that again in section 88. If you've been warned, then you've got to go warn your neighbor. If you're awake, then wake up the world. Because if you don't wake them up, then there will eventually come wake-up calls that no one will be able to sleep through. But by then you will have wished you were already up and at them beforehand. Verse 21 suggests that. For if I, whom am a man, do lift up my voice and call upon you to repent, and ye hate me, that's why you hit the snooze bar, throw the alarm clock at me. I think my sister was, was tempted to wrap the, the bugle, you know, stretch out the bugle and then rewrap it around my head. What, but if, that, if that's how you respond to me, a mere mortal, then what will ye say when the day cometh, when the thunder shall utter their voices from the ends of the earth, speaking to the ears of all that live, saying, Repent and prepare ye for the great day of the Lord? You see, their message was the same as mine. I was talking in verse 20, prepare yourselves for the great day of the Lord. The earth itself is speaking much more loudly in 21, but the same message, repent and prepare for the great day. You can go ahead and hate me, but what are you going to do against the signs of the times? Remember, among the wicked, only destruction upon Babylon will, will be answered upon their heads. That's their wake-up call. I would so much rather hear and heed the still small voice or to listen and learn from living prophets and apostles as they cry repentance in gentle ways. Otherwise, I will be waiting for wars and rumors of wars, of earthquakes in diverse places, of famine and pestilence and plague, the kinds of things we saw back in section 29, the th kinds of things we read about in the book of Revelation. There will come a day where the call to repent is so crystal clear that the coming of Christ is unavoidably obvious to everyone. But by then, where's our hatred going to go? By then, will hitting a snooze bar do any good at all? No, everyone's awake. There's no more bed to lie down in. He extends that metaphor in 22. Again, when the lightnings shall streak forth from the east unto the west, and shall utter forth their voices unto all that live, and make the ears of all tingle that hear, saying these words, Repent ye. For the great day of the Lord is come. You see that every time it's the same message. It just gets louder. Have you ever had an alarm clock that does that? Where it starts kind of gently, but the more you ignore it, the louder it gets. It's trying to wake you up. You wanted to wake up. You said it the night before. You had every intention of getting up. So do it. Heed the still small voice. Heed the words of prophets. Pay attention to the signs of the times. Because if now you are plugging your ears from those gentler voices, the day will come that no ear plugging will be sufficient because your ears will be tingling as they hear the unmistakable voice that God has sent his son again. In 23, again, the Lord shall utter his voice out of heaven, saying, Hearken, O ye nations of the earth, hear the words of that God who made you. And then a message in verse 24 that we should be well familiar with. Almost every time that the Lord speaks of the second coming, he uses this same analogy of a hen clucking in hopes that her chicks will come running. O ye nations of the earth, how often would I have gathered you together as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings? But ye would not. It's exactly what he says in Matthew 23, before teaching signs of the times in Matthew 24. It's exactly what he says in 3 Nephi 10, 
right before he comes again in 3 Nephi 11. He's saying it here in advance of the coming of Christ. Won't you come and gather to the arms of mercy that are extended towards you? My hand is stretched out still. Come to the wing of the mother hen and be safe. Those last four words, by the way, but ye would not, are haunting. Back in section 25, I shared with you a piece of poetry that I felt came from heaven uh, as I tried to make sense of the Savior's song and what it would be like to hear his voice. Well, I wrote a poem once about that phrase, but ye would not. I shared it in the video that we did for 3 Nephi chapter 10, where he again dramatizes the coming of Christ by this lamentable voice of, I tried calling. In fact, in 3510, he uses every verb tense you can imagine. How oft have I called you? How oft would I have called you? How oft will I call you? I keep trying, past, present, future, conditional. I mean, you name it. When will you come? And ye would not is this haunting phrase of sorrow on the Lord's part. Why wouldn't you come? If you want to hear that poem, you can go back and watch that video in 3 Nephi 10. But just the sorrow on his part. Why wouldn't you come when I called? Here in verse 25 and 26, then he starts to list all the different ways he tried to get our attention. All the ways his voice came before our ears begin to tingle. Notice his list. How oft have I called upon you by the mouth of my servants. That was the, one of the more gentle initial calls. Or how about this one? By the ministering of angels and by mine own voice. So many ways that he's tried to reach out and call to us. But if those don't work, now the bugle comes. Now the louder voice of thunderings and lightnings. That's what he says as he continues. By the voice of thunderings and by the voice of lightnings, by the voice of tempests and by the voice of earthquakes and great hailstorms and by the voice of famines and pestilences of every kind. See what he's trying to do? Wake us up. That's what the signs of the times are for. He keeps going. By the great sound of a trump, loud and clear, by the voice of judgment and by the voice of mercy all the day long, and by the voice of glory and honor and the riches of eternal life and would have saved you with an everlasting salvation, but ye would not. I get a sense from verse 25 that the Lord is pulling out all the stops trying everything he possibly can. What's the best way to wake you up? For your alarm, do you prefer loud buzzing or gentle music? Do you prefer unmistakable signs of the times or gentle, still, small whisperings? Do you prefer the voice of judgment or the voice of mercy? Do you respond better to carrots or sticks? Remember section 18, carrot, and section 19, stick? Either way, I just want you to repent and come unto me. In all of these things, I would have saved you with an everlasting salvation. Why wouldn't you come? He then says in 26, Behold, the day has come when the cup of the wrath of mine indignation is full. I drank the dregs of a bitter cup for you to try to save you from ever having to drink something similar. The cup of God's wrath of my indignation is full. I don't want you to drink it. So repent. 27, behold, verily I say unto you that these are the words of the Lord your God. Wherefore, labor ye, labor ye in my vineyard for the last time. For the last time, call upon the inhabitants of the earth. 
They understand why we need to go out and share the gospel, why we've got to assemble ourselves together, agree upon God's word, gather the faithful so that we can then be endowed with power from on high, live God's law, and then go out and share the gospel with the world. It's pruning time. It's harvesting time. So it's laboring time. Call upon the earth. Verse 29, For in mine own due time will I come upon the earth in judgment, and my people shall be redeemed and shall reign with me on earth. For the great millennium, of which I have spoken by the mouth of my servants, shall come. Satan shall be bound. When he is loosed again, he shall only reign for a little season, and then cometh the end of the earth. He that liveth in righteousness shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye, and the earth shall pass away so as by fire. And the wicked shall go away into unquenchable fire, and their end no man knoweth on earth, nor ever shall know, until they come before me in judgment. In those last five verses, he just gave us the Cliff Notes version, the, the quick summary of all that he taught us back in section 29 about the last days and the chronology that will, that will unfold before us. Destruction of the wicked, coming of Christ, millennial reign, loosing of Satan, uh, little season, final victory and resurrection. It's all coming. And so what's the role of the church and its members in anticipation of all that? It's not just anticipation, it's preparation. So go and wake up the world with whatever is needed. He then ends this revelation, hearken ye to these words. Behold, I am Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. I'm not here to scare you, I'm here to save you. I'm here to cleanse you by fire, not consume you by it. So treasure these things up in your hearts and let the solemnities of eternity rest upon your minds. Be sober. Keep all my commandments. Even so, amen. Amazing that he who could speak with such power thunder and lightning, can also speak with such gentle reassurance. Just treasure up these words. Feast upon them. Let the solemnities of eternity, let it just think about this. Feel these things. Be sober. Wake up. And then go wake up the world. Keep my commandments. I just gave you a whole revelation full of them. That's how you live the gospel to prepare. Then our last section for the today, or this week, section 44, brief revelation about conferences coming together. We just had a general conference. Here the saints are preparing for another smaller one. But they're told in verse 1, Behold, thus saith the Lord unto you, my servants, it is expedient in me that the elders of my church should be called together from the east and the west and the north and the south by letter or some other way. Gather together. There is strength in numbers. Come and agree upon my word. Verse 2, it shall come to pass that inasmuch as they are faithful and exercise faith in me, I will pour out my spirit upon them in the day that they assemble themselves together. Now, don't think he's being redundant there. As they are faithful and exercise faith. Faithfulness seems to be how we live, the works side of things. And then exercising faith. It's like one is faithful and the other is full of faith. One is the works, the other is the, is the belief and the mental exertion are you living, but are you loving and learning and, and willing God's truth into existence through the kind of faith that President Nelson just talked about? As we do that, oh, nothing could stop the Spirit from being poured out upon us. We're prepared for it. 
And then once we've received that spirit in verse 2, then we're ready in verse 3 to go forth into the regions round about and preach repentance unto the people. It's never to stop with you. That's just the beginning. So unkink your hose and more and more water will be flowing through it. Verse 4, many shall be converted inasmuch that ye shall obtain power to organize yourselves according to the laws of man. We just saw a lot of the laws of God back in section 42. Can you organize yourselves along those lines as well? Some things are required. A critical mass is required to accomplish some things. Verse 5 then, some of the blessings that come as we gather in conferences, that your enemies may not have power over you, that you may be preserved in all things, that you may be enabled to keep my laws, that every bond may be broken wherewith the enemy seeketh to destroy my people. Do you, did you feel that with General Conference? If not, you still have a chance as we study the words that were given. Does it grant us power over our enemies? It's meant to. Does it preserve us? Does it enable us to keep the laws? It's one thing for the laws to be clarified in those conferences, but to be enabled as, as participants in those conferences, man, I feel more able to live the law and more willing. I understand them better. I feel the Lord's grace and enabling me, helping me keep these laws. It's breaking the bonds that I feel in subjection to, to my enemies. Then in verse 6, he concludes, Behold, I say unto you that ye must visit the poor and the needy and administer to their relief, that they may be kept until all things may be done according to my law, which ye have received. Amen. Seems a little out of the blue, doesn't it? Actually, I hope not. That is, we're talking about conferences and, and having power to keep God's law and breaking bonds and, and all these spiritual kinds of things. Oh, but, but don't forget. Don't forget the poor and the needy. Visit them. Remember them, we were told back in section 42. It's like King Benjamin. Speaking of powerful conferences, right? Let's gather all the Nephites and listen to King Benjamin's voice and he's, as he speaks about how to break the bonds, uh, to overcome the enemy of all righteousness, to become truly born again. But in the midst of that life-changing conference address with the assembled saints, he also tells them, you've got to care for the poor and the needy. They are begging for your help, just like you've been begging for forgiveness from God. The Lord has been generous with you. Will you be generous with them? To me, this is all part of the same work. That the, the horizontal, temporal, law of consecration kinds of things, and the vertical, spiritual, connecting to God as we come together to listen to the Lord's voice, it's all the same thing. Isn't that what he told us in section 29? It's all spiritual to me. So whether it's meeting your spiritual needs through these conferences or meeting the temporal needs of the poor and the needy, it is my work and glory to bring to pass your immortality and eternal life, to provide for you, to gather you under my protective wing. It's all there. Everything we need. I can give you just one last thought to ponder about the law of consecration since we'll see so many hints of it and added instructions as we move forward. I remember this striking me in the temple once as I was pondering a phrase about having sufficient for our needs. I've always been drawn to those two words, sufficient and needs. Sufficient. It doesn't have to be overabundant. It, it's, it's sufficient. And needs it doesn't have to be wants or, or dreams or, or, or some fantasy wish list. 
my needs are met with things that are sufficient for them. But the older I get, the more I ponder that phrase and the words we and our have come to mean everything to me. If you're not one, you're not mine. So the Lord deals with the collective, right? And for us to say that we collectively have sufficient for our collective needs, I might not on my own, but collectively there is more than enough. Enough and to spare. If we'll do things in the Lord's way, if we'll remember the poor, if we'll have an eye to them and see their needs, and I might be part of the we have sufficient, and a friend or a stranger even might be part of the we have needs, but if we'll simply come together as one and live according to the Lord's laws, we together will have sufficient for all of our collective needs. I testify of that. So whether you're a have or a have not, whether you need to overcome pride from ab above or pride from below, wherever we happen to be in this, if we will come to know the Lord and know that we are serving others in order to serve him or as a way of serving him, I testify of his abundant blessings. It's amazing what you'll find underneath the mother hen's wings.